This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, your Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have an episode tonight that rates at over 3,000 horsepower. That's better than you, Lotus. Seriously, I know nothing about cars. But anyway, in diecasting, we'll be taking to the podium as we issue our orders to the masses with the leadership skill. In the furnace, we continue our multi-show discussion on vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game with a look at the points to consider when running vehicle combat. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to a special guest with another special guest who'll be your co-host, uh, he'll be joining us, as well as uh, we'll be discussing a setting available on the Foundry that I hope will be familiar to you all. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to the guy who, while we're all enjoying lockdown in some form or another, is playing arcade games on an actual arcade machine in his living room, no less, that sounds amazing. It's GM Chris. Chris, happy birthday from last week, man. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was an interesting birthday, to say the least. Because <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like completely something that I don't think any of us really expected to be in this sort of side of things in the world, that's for sure. Did you have a good day? Yeah, it was a good day. It was a very good day. My, uh, my nine-year-old daughter baked me a birthday cake all on her own entirely from scratch wow nice she did a great she did a great job too she did great <laughs> excellent excellent yeah how you been brother you handling the uh covid teen okay <laughs> yeah all right um i'm pretty lucky because i'm still going to work and uh, pretty stressful but um, i'm okay family's okay and we are all covid19 free so uh very very oh, good day good to hear hmm. good to hear it goes without saying we can't talk about it before we get on. Although a lot of our listeners, a lot of fans, a lot of members of the community are being seriously affected by COVID. Mm. And a lot of people have lost their jobs. Yep. Um, a lot of people are dealing with sick family mm. um, or, or you know, and some have experienced some death. Yeah. You know, uh, a dear friend of ours, both, Huli, um, uh, actually had an aunt die from COVID here in Dallas. Mm. It's awful. You know, all we'll say, guys, is that it's rough. But we're together, we're a community, and, you know, our hearts are with you all, wishing you guys nothing but the best to, so that we can all get through this safely mm-hmm. and easily as best as we can. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know, I've been, I've been turning to a lot of, a lot of, a lot of entertainment to get me through this, including podcasts, so. <laughs> yes, absolutely we have. I think we've all been there, Chris. 
but also, look, I'd just like to add my comments very, very quickly. So from across the pond on this side of the planet, um, you know, the whole world has been affected by this crisis. So I just hope from me to wherever you are, um, that, that I hope that you, uh, your family and all of your loved ones are also safe and, and well. And I know that a lot of you have also been sort of like suffering, not necessarily from the actual COVID itself, which is horrible, but also because a lot of us are all in lockdown. And and that's uh, when it comes to gamers, that's a really hard thing to do for them. Um, And I think that that one of the things that has really affected me, and I, I can't obviously speak for other people, but but one of the things that has really affected me during this crisis is that I haven't been able to see many of my friends let alone my gaming friends, uh, as much as I once did anyway. And I think that that's something that does affect us all. So, um, you know, there are means out there if you haven't tried it already. And, and the way that I've been dealing with it is through the use of Roll20, which, to be honest, is nothing but a heaven's end. I've um, set myself up with a, a pro account now. And I've been running some sessions and, uh, you know, delving into that, uh, which has been a lot of fun. So, uh, you know, if that's the only way we can game, that's the only way we can game. So, uh, you know, it's, so, okay, it's great. So you're you're familiar with the Eberron Renewed podcast on the D20 Radio yeah, Network, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're preparing a new Eberron campaign. Um, but in the interim, they've been doing a bunch of one-shots. And um, I got the privilege to actually GM a Genesis one-shot for them just this past Sunday. Oh. Uh, or I guess, I guess a bit of a, about a week ago now. Yeah. Where, uh, yeah, which which was fantastic. And, and I know Eric will probably be splitting that into a few different episodes. But <laughs> um, I, I ran an initial sort of play test of my barely there dusters and dragons <laughs> setting for Genesis. That sounds awesome. <laughs> It was it was truly great, and they truly derailed it in quite a literal sense, um, <laughs> which which uh, you know I, I I do mean literal derailment. So, <laughs> that sounds like a spoiler, Chris. Just a, just a wee bit, <laughs> but yeah, there's I, don't know, I can't wait for that. There's a lot, there's a lot of good stuff on the D twenty Radio Network happening right now. Maybe we can get into that. You want to get into that? I think that sounds like a really really good plan. So we've got a few things to discuss and some great new stuff available on the Foundry. So let's get into it on Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? I cannot wait to tell you about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week because I am terribly excited for this podcast. This is the newest podcast to grace this network. We've been working with them for a few weeks on this as they've been getting ready. Mm. Um, The podcast is called What Comes After, and it is a Genesis actual play podcast i have seen community members saying i want to hear genesis actual play you can now hear it in what comes after uh they they sent me the first episode several weeks ago i was totally hooked the the basic elevator pitch is the world as we know ended in the mid-1980s uh when billions of people died at once five years later four survivors discover that everything is about to change again Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is a post-apocalyptic 
setting and actual play game it is phenomenal with a with an incredible gaming crew mm-hmm. um and their latest their latest episode they've got a couple out now their latest episode uh the group tracks the raiders camp um deals with the boss there and then heads back to plymouth for those who've been listening along um this the show is phenomenal it's a great addition to the network and for those of you listening to our show if you love yourself some genesis you should definitely check it out because there's not a lot of genesis actual play happening and this is a great show mm. um Truly great show. And you guys can find it and many more amazing geekery, gaming, and just glorious podcasts over at d20radio.com. Indeed. Fantastic podcast. And welcome to uh, the network, guys. Um, So first up, Chris, let's talk about new Foundry content. There have been quite a few new releases since our last episode. You know, and the first of which is is Zonigan Zealots from the ever-working Chris Markham. Um, The blurb says... While part of the known world, Zanaga still holds many mysteries. Dark gods and others long forgotten by the rest of Minara still hold sway here, and their cults and followers continue to do their bidding. Crimnia Krim- the Blind, the learned monk and expert on the faiths of Minara, guides you through understanding these deities and their worshippers. Um, you know, while the while the Realms of Terranov source, source book introduced some of the gods of Minara, the supplement is kind of a sequel to Ministries of Minara um, and seeks to offer a lot more information, um, as well as some additional gods referenced in past lore for Terranov. Mm-hmm. Um, the product goes into a lot of detail around 14 different gods. Wow. Um, including, including, yeah, some of those that are actually mentioned in the source book. Um, however, it also includes an example of each god's holy symbol, mm-hmm. um, uh, more information on the clergy of each deity, as well as additional information for GMs about the categories of these deities, uh, Zanagan, Elven, or, uh, or Ketian. And it's only a buck, which is fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, seriously, for you Terranoth fans out there, great pickup. Mm, it's really good. And uh, as well with uh, original artwork, which is uh, something that I love, 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 love about oh, yeah. Chris's work. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so it's fantastic. So, uh, now our second um, offering is a Ready Fight Micro Supplement, uh, and that's Ready Fight Micro Supplement number four, Aya Sabia Al Nahayan. From High Metric Games, also known as Keith Ryan Cappell. Now, uh, this character adversary, it's an NPC adversary, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappler with kinesthetic memory, which is um, quite unusual and unique. Um, the supplement includes an in-depth NPC write-up that provides story hooks to work them into your campaign, as well as the four motivations and advice for bringing AR to life at your gaming table. It also provides a new talent, the Tricky Pull Guard, one new unarmed weapon, the Sneaky Heel Hook, and it's only pay what you want. So, uh, you know, the recommended is a dollar, but pay what you want. If you love it, give him some money. It's absolutely fantastic. And I love these micro supplements. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of Ready Fight. And, um, you know, I've I've seen a little bit of a glimpse of what's on um, Keith's, you know, radar when it comes to what he's uh, working on at the moment. Uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. But uh, Ready Fight, if you haven't got it, and if you haven't, why you're listening to this podcast, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Go check it out. <laughs> Next up is Super Heroics. With a slammer on the end from <laughs> Lazaro Izaguirre, who also, also, if I'm not mistaken, did um, Secret Agents on yes. Drive Through RPG. Yeah. 
but basically, uh, it's a compact superhero campaign setting uh, for Genesis. Um, includes the basics needed to get started, and apparently ten new talents. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't had the chance to look at this one yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's four ninety nine, mm-hmm. um, but I, I do I do look forward to taking a peek inside of it. Um, just from the preview, however, uh, the artwork looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. So very eager to take a deeper dive into it. Yeah, absolutely. It looks really good. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have Lazaro on the uh, podcast at some stage. Now, next we have Psy uh, from Michael Rees. Um, so uh, the blurb is that uh, unlock the power of the mind with this guide to using psychics in your Genesis games. Whether you want to run games focused on those with psionic gifts or introduce psychics into your existing campaign, there is something for everyone here. Now, it includes two new archetypes, five new careers, three new size skills, 52 new side talents, which sounds huge, a host of rules to get the most out of your new side powers, side gear, a guide to creating new settings uh, using psychics in a variety of tones, 10 adversaries to challenge psychic and non-psychic characters alike, factions both pro and anti-psy, and four new settings. Uh, Mind War is one, Meltdown is another, the Academy is another one, and the Divide. So all sound really interesting. I won't go into too much. Uh, you can certainly go and check that out. And it's look, it's only four ninety one, unusual price to go four ninety one. But hey, look, each to their own. Uh, but um, yeah, <laughs> go and check it out. Uh, it uh, it certainly looks fantastic, and there's a lot of content there. So uh, so yeah, looking forward to checking that out. So you can find these and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. Yeah, very cool. I have to say, I'm 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 excited to read this. I'm a little miffed because I know you and I and a couple others have been working on our own Psionics handbook, mm-hmm. but the more the merrier, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, he managed to get it out before us. We've just been too busy. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, but uh, yeah, very, very, very excited to get to dive through this and good on him. Yeah. But you guys can ease and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com simply by performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of the Forge by joining our Patreon? For as little as $2 a month, you can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with our fellow Forgers. Wait, we tried that last episode, well. Yeah, we did. No. Actually, I think that somebody online, I think it was on Facebook, Rob Armand, that's right, uh, and he called it Gene Smiths. That's oh, pretty Jenna cool. Smiths. Jenna yeah, Smiths. Jenna yeah. Smiths. Yeah. See, I like that's, that. That's cool. I like that. I do. I do. I do like that. Yeah, that's not bad. That's hmm. not bad. But, hmm. uh, you know, if you want to be a Jenna Smith... <laughs> um, you you know <laughs> again we have that that very low uh tier um but honestly if you guys really enjoy what we do higher tiers provide a priority uh, for your game and rules questions on the show mm-hmm. uh, with our largest tier not only providing you with a special thank you at the top of the show which you guys no doubt heard but also a special monthly get together without myself or Huli to discuss your foundry product or campaign uh, but no matter what, anything you guys can spare to show your support to us is really appreciated. All of your donations to Patreon do help the podcast directly. They pay for our server fees. They pay for our equipment. They pay for our licensing of various softwares <laughs> to allow us to produce this show <laughs> so we can continue providing you with the excellent regular Genesis content uh, that we've been doing. Absolutely. And uh, so, Game Nation, join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at Patreon forward slash Forge Genesis. 
All right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, Chris. I'm getting a new set of orders through. <laughs> it seems to be from Command HQ, and they're telling us that it's time for some die casting. Die casting. The Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. Uh, the diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Now, last episode, we took a dive into the shapeshifter talents in Realms of Terranoth and their transformative effects <laughs> um, on both players and games. Um, and we also took our own stab at creating some additional shapeshifter talents that added more teeth to the shapeshifting whims of eager lycanthropic PCs. <laughs> Tonight, however, we're going to turn our discussion back to skills based on a recent listener request. And the request was to really focus on the usage and differentiation of the leadership skill. And this is a really interesting topic because ever since the days of Star Wars, the dichotomy between leadership and some of the other social skills in the game has been confusing to some players and also for, you know, for GMs as well. Uh, maybe it's the, you know, the innate training that D&D taught us with persuasion, deception and intimidation. But the addition of negotiation and leadership can be a sticking point for many who play the game. Now, way back in episode 10, we talked about negotiation, but to round out the social skill discussion, we're going to take a deep look at leadership. How does it work? When do you use it? And when do you not use it? And of course, we'll dig into the raw and creative non-raw ways that you can utilize leadership best in your own games or in your upcoming Foundry product. Mm-hmm. All right, Huli. Let's talk about the basics. What is the leadership skill? So the leadership skill is one of the social skills of which there are five, um, and it's found in the core rulebook and is noted as a skill to inspire others through a combination of, of charisma, of bravery, and even sort of, you know, forceful personality. Um, so the core rulebook says for leadership, it's a presence-based skill, and it says that leadership is a combination of making smart decisions being firm and decisive when doing so, and instilling a sense of loyalty and respect in your subordinates. Leadership also represents your character knowing the right decisions to make when authority is called for. Obviously, military commanders rely on leadership, as do politicians, business owners, and even crime bosses. Now, leadership is a skill to get others to do what you want them to do for sure, but it's from a position of authority, whether that's the, the real authority or perceived authority. In other words, it's about giving orders and having those orders followed. But leadership is also strange, Huli, in that in some ways, it's more than a social skill. Mm. Like, as the description clearly lays out, it's not just about giving orders people follow. It's about simply knowing the right decisions to make in the first place, mm. which... I think a lot of people miss, and we'll talk about this. You know, in other words, it, it's more than influencing others to do your bidding. It's also, for lack of a better term, the decision-making skill in mm. terms of even knowing what the right decision should be. True, and th that puts leadership in a very strange class of skill compared to something like charm or deception or coercion. Mm. Now, the book does give some solid example of of, of when to use leadership. You know, uh, to rally allies who are suffering from fear, to convince a crowd of citizens, to take political action. 
to lead troops into battle and ensure that they follow your orders in the first place, convincing a mob of rioters to stand down and return to their homes without threatening violence or consequence. But, you know, we'll, we'll come to that later on. <laughs> now, Holy, what all those examples from the book have in common is three things. Hmm. One, you are using your force of personality to influence, okay? Mm-hmm. Not necessarily your charisma, but that plays into it, but it's, it's more your force of personality. This is why, why presence is the characteristic key to leadership, yeah. all right? Mm-hmm. But this is very different from charm. General Patton had extremely strong leadership, but no one would ever say he was a great charmer, all right? <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, again, he's, but he's still using his force of personality to influence. Mm-hmm. Two, usually... Though not always, leadership is used to influence more than one person. Mm. It's used when you need to influence a group. Yep. Yep. And three, leadership is not flattering. It's not cajoling. It's not lying. It's not negotiating. It is simply using logic, reason, and most importantly, perceived authority to influence. And authority Mm. is the key here. And what really differentiates leadership from the other social skills, you know? Mm. Very good points. Now, the book also gives us some great examples of what leadership is not used for. So, if you are threatening to hurt or kill someone if they don't obey, now that's going to be coercion. Simple. If you're trying to convince someone to do something simply by being friendly or or appealing to their better nature, that's charm. Mm-hmm. And if your character has formal authority and issues routine orders especially outside of combat or stressful situations, if there is no good reason to obey your character and your character has, um, you know, the rank, station, or to issue orders, then others are simply going to obey most mundane commands automatically without making rolls. As we've said in the past, don't roll when you don't need to. That When there's no stakes at all involved, don't roll for it. Um, it just automatically happens because, you know, that's the, the the nature of things. You want to speed through the process as best as you possibly can. Unless it means something, don't have them roll. Simple. Exactly. Mm. So, Huli, now that we've gone through kind of the basics of what the leadership skill is and we mm. understand how it's used and how it's not used, yep. um, let's talk about what kind of tools the books give us in terms of species, careers, and, and talents that relate to this. Mm. I mean, do I mean talk, talk to me first, man? I mean, I, we got a lot of species that we really need to talk about here, right? Yeah, absolutely. We don't. Um, <laughs> again, we have absolutely no species that use leadership um, as as part of their 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 initial starting abilities and, and things like that. There are certainly uh, there are certainly characters or, or archetypes and, and species out there that have high presence. But there's none that really focus on leadership. No, no species, no species give you that free rank. No, absolutely. But what about careers, Chris? Well, we have quite a few careers. Mm. Um, uh, obviously, as you can imagine, leadership being what it is, there's there's quite a few careers that that have it on their career skill list. Um, also, I guess I'll start with the core rule book very simply, uh, and they all make sense mm. um, to the for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is the entertainer, <laughs> right? Um, makes sense. There is the leader. <laughs> That's an obvious um, choice. One <laughs> of the generic uh, career types. Yep. Um, when you get into some of the setting-specific career types, however, um, and the theme appropriate, uh, we have the knight, 
makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Uh, we have the starship captain. Mm-hmm. And I'm raising my eyebrow <laughs> because it's it's also listed for the wizard. Right. See, I don't have a problem with that because, like, if you've got a high-powered wizard, how else is he going to command his um, troops of mops with uh, carrying their buckets of water, to, uh, to quote Fantasia? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, to command his minions, uh, which is what, you know, bad guy wizards anyway. Uh, that's what they're going to have. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. So what, you're, so what you're saying is Mickey had crappy leadership. Basically. <laughs> yes. Or shouldn't have really touched his, uh, his master's stuff. Is what it really boils down to. <laughs> All right. But what about Realms of Taranoth? Uh, we have, uh, understandably, the Disciple, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously the, the can be religious leadership. Uh, we have the Envoy and the Warrior, which mm. is sort of the, the the knight for Taranoth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then to round it off, we've got Shadow of the Beanstalk, which has the Academic, the Investigator, and the Risty. Uh, which the last one, having played Aristi in uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk, totally makes sense. Uh, my character was in yeah. charge of a nightclub. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, barking orders at um, some of the uh, the lowly uh, staff was just basically something my character was good at. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> what about talents? Because, you know, as we talk about these, these careers that can give you a free rank, obviously – for those that have high leadership, are there any talents that are geared towards leadership skill in certain ways? Of course there are. There are half a dozen published talents to this point um, that deal with leadership in some way. And frankly, Huli, they're all awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so let's go through each one of them very briefly. So the first one that we have is Coordinated Assault. Now that's in the core rulebook, page 75. It's a tier two. Uh, it's an active manoeuvre, it's ranked, and once per turn, you can use this talent to have a number of engaged allies equal to your ranks in leadership add a single advantage to all combat checks they make until the end of your next turn. That may not seem like a lot, but I tell you what, that one advantage can get you that crit that you really needed. You Uh, better believe it. Um, and, uh, you know, additional ranks in the talent increase the range that it can work at by one range band per additional rank, which is fantastic. So, so Huli, when mm. we talk about these hidden patterns in Genesis that we notice through play, yep. right? Like, like, like we talked about it, like, uh, uh, last episode of the episode prior, like what is, or wh- wh- what is the length of the average encounter? The, the average encounter, depending on whether we're talking about vehicles and, uh, and uh, normal people, but normally the average encounter is only three turns on average. Three rounds. Yeah, three on rounds. On average, three rounds. This is, this is one of those fundamental simple rules, okay? Mm. Here's another one for you. And you know this because you've played as much as I have. Yep. What is the average amount of advantage that is rolled? Two, three? Two. Right. It's two. You know you know that. I mean, how often do you use I mean, like typically speaking, it's typically two, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are most crit ranges at? Three to four, depending on what sort Three of weapon to you four. use. Yeah. Exactly. So one additional advantage makes a huge, huge, huge difference when you're mm. giving it to all your allies that are clustered around you. Also, I'd like to point out how incredibly awesome it is to give this talent to a character in a party of magic users. Mm. Because as you and I both know, what 
one extra advantage on a on a a magic skill check can do. Oh yeah, powering all of those extra abilities when you're only needing two advantages for the most part to activate those special. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's amazing. Not to mention strain recovery. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good point. Very good point. Wow, that's a lot better than I thought it was. Um. <laughs> it's, I'm telling you, it's it's amazing. <laughs> all right. What's our next one? <laughs> well, okay, we'll, we'll cover them both together, actually. This would be the inspiring uh, – well, actually, there's three. Um, the inspiring rhetoric tree. Yep. Um, so so inspiring rhetoric, core rulebook, page 75. It's a tier two talent. Mm-hmm. Holdover from Star Wars. Um, it's an active talent. requires an action. It's non-ranked. And you, you know it. You love it. If you've been playing Star Wars in any amount of time, you, you know it. Um, you make an average leadership check. Every success you generate – allows one ally in short range to heal one strain. And then for each advantage you generate, one ally that's benefiting from the talent can heal an additional strain. It's always, though, been the stepping stone to improved Inspiring Rhetoric, Tier 3, page 78, Core Rulebook, where all allies affected by Inspiring Rhetoric also gain a boost die (laughs) for a number of rounds equal to your leadership rank. Which is which is what is that that's that is the buff talent the core buff talent in the game. Yeah. Um. And then of course there's in uh supreme inspiring rhetoric uh mm-hmm. tier four uh page eighty of the core rulebook. Basically, for the cost of suffering a single strain, you can use inspiring rhetoric as a maneuver instead of an action, <laughs> which is ridiculously worth it. <laughs> Means you can do other stuff as well <laughs> at the same time. Uh, it's very very cool and what are the what are the last two so we've got um again from the core rule book we've got field commander which is on page 78 it's a tier three um it's an active action required to activate uh type of talent it's non-ranked uh make an average leadership check so that's pretty simple if you've got tier three if you're doing it right if successful a number of allies equal to your presence may immediately suffer one strain to perform one out-of-turn maneuver. I've seen this used so many times when I was running Dragon Squadron that it was insane. It was fantastic. Highly worth it. And its improved version (laughs) is better again. So it's in, uh, again, Core Book, page 80. It's a tier four, uh, so it's not too far off its, uh, its younger sibling. Uh, it's a passive ability. Uh, it's non-ranked. And when you use Field Commander, you affect allies equal to twice your presence. And you may spend a triumph to allow one ally to suffer one strain to perform an action. That's an action. That's nuts. Instead of a maneuver. That's, yeah, that's amazing. crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Hmm. It, it's one of those things where... If you've got a, a serious leadership-focused character between the inspiring rhetoric trees and field commanders, which you know it, it can take them a while to get them all, but they they can be one of the most powerful support characters you've likely ever played. Yeah, I mean you're you're you literally are doing battlefield control and massive buffing. Mm. It's it's yeah, truly tremendous. Yeah. And there isn't yeah. a lot of um, of strain expenditure uh, there at no. all. So uh, you you know you just keep in the background um, and uh, keep running all of these abilities and uh, yeah the rest of the party will love you simple oh yeah 
Um, yeah, it, it, it's great. If you, if you can get to like improve, if you can get to supreme inspiring rhetoric, um, which is where, where you're going to have some strain costs to come in yep. and then you can get to like improve field commander as well. So, I mean, that's up there two tier fours. That's, that's quite, that's quite advanced. Yeah. But I mean, at that point you can spend a maneuver and an action each round to pop both these Yeah. and you're affecting all allies on the field typically at that point. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's truly amazing. Mm. Nice combo there. Definitely. Mm-hmm. But what about gear? We've got uh, a few little pieces of gear, don't we? Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's not a whole lot that affects leadership, mm-hmm. um, but it is worth talking about. Yep. Um, the first, uh, definitely uh, f- uh, fantasy-themed, but the the fine cloak <laughs> um, on page 146 of the core rulebook, mm-hmm. a fine silk or embroidered wool cloak that protects you from the elements, but more importantly, elevates your stature <laughs> in the eyes of others. Um and it allows you to remove uh, one setback die, actually, from any charm, deception, or leadership checks that you make. Um, <laughs> it's also cloned as the fine cloak in Realms of Tyranoth, uh, page 100 for uh, the Tyranoth setting as well. Mm, very, very cool. Um, the one that I like the most is the Gilded Armor Attachment, which is in Realms of Tyranoth, page 107. Uh, with little practical purpose, nobles like to adorn their armor with gold leaf. With it, your character adds a boost eye to any charm, negotiation, or leadership checks. Nice little yep. add-on boost. I'd, I'd love boost eye. I, I can't speak more highly enough about them. <laughs> so. um, actually, my favorite... Uh, piece of quote unquote gear, if you can mm. call it gear, yep. um, is it because it's a G mod? Um, <laughs> in in it so really so far is actually the Geno sculpted physique body modification. Mm, okay. Um, uh, Shadow, <laughs> you know, Shadow of the Beanstalk, page one hundred eight. Yep. And basically, it's it's a G mod that is you know you just have you have the body of a star athlete or a model or a Greek god, basically. <laughs> and but what I love most is the effect. I love the effects of a lot of the gear in. Uh, in in android but with this gmod you can suffer one strain before making a charm or leadership check and if you do that you automatically add one extra success to the results of your role wow um which is great free success is free advantage you gotta love them yeah (laughs) absolutely um so yeah okay that that may have yeah that's pretty good too (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about advantage, triumphs, threats, and despairs, which is something that we like <laughs> to do. So for advantages, um, to use them when a leadership check is made, um, you know, for those who are following your orders, advantages could provide boost die on checks that they need to make in the following turn. Um, when you've got things like uh, the talents we described before with Inspiring Reddick, and, and even if you don't have any of those, um, you can still, and I've seen plenty of players do it, they will just go, can I make a leadership check to give some inspiration to people? Um, yeah. That they can use the leadership um, to get those advantages to then pass on those boost die. Um, so very, very useful. Triumphs. Uh, as usual, this could be a major success of unexpected proportions, such as, you know, like attracting loyal followers who stay with you for a time or begin relaying your orders to totally separate groups. 
Alternatively, as uh, as I just mentioned, it could upgrade the checks of uh, of those following your orders. Um, so you know, very very helpful. Um, some base uses uh, uses of of triumphs there. But what about threat and despair, which are always my favourite? <laughs> well, for threat, I mean, it's similar to combat. Threat could represent you suffering strain. Mm-hmm. Um, and for leadership, this makes a lot of sense, actually, being drained after an impassioned or maybe a nerve-wrenching speech. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe if you do poorly from embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, if you have shaky leadership, maybe you can convince someone to follow your orders, but they're not too convinced of their efficacy. <laughs> Therefore, I love using multiple threat to inf- uh, force setback dice right. um, onto the checks of those people who are carrying out your orders. Uh, very cool. Um, but all of that pales in comparison to the fun <laughs> you can have when you roll a despair on a leadership check. Yep. This is the fun stuff. Because despair, I mean, when you consider what leadership is and typically what you're trying to do with it, this can represent a complete break in ranks and leadership. And quite frankly, on a failed check, could even be full-on mutiny. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether whether it, you know troops uh, or a mobbed crowd could actively retreat, um, you know, with, with despair on a failed check or, mm-hmm. or run for their lives or even attack you. <laughs> and even on a successful check, if you've rolled a despair, it's like... Because of the way leadership works, where it's not just about getting them to follow your plan, it's also about having a good plan to begin with. On a successful check with a despair, you've convinced them, but guess what? Your plan sucks. (laughs) 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 Which, which, you know, mechanically could manifest as difficulty upgrades on your followers' checks um, as they struggle with this ill-thought-out plan or you just did a, a less than optimal job of explaining it, meaning they're having to struggle to implement your instructions. Yes. Absolutely. So, y- yeah. Um, look, because leadership is a, a social skill, you really can't go past the social skill table for, use, for spending advantages, threats, and despairs as well. Uh, and that's in uh, the uh, social encounters section of the core rulebook. And it's got some great suggestions there. And I think that one thing that we really can't miss out on, and it's something that, Chris, that you've mentioned numerous times on on the show, is that don't forget character motivations. With advantages and triumphs, you can be learning these things, uh, whether it's be, you know, the, the person's, what what is really driving them? You know, um, what are their fears and things like that? But um, on the other side of the coin, with threats and despairs, you can actually give away one of your desires or or one of your fears to the opposition just through the way that you've been talking um, uh, during that speech. And that's something that they can use against you later on down the track as well. So uh, some interesting ways to, to, uh, to use advantages, triumphs, threats and despairs there. So can you think of any others? No, no, I think you hit the high points, man. Yeah. Now, what about uh, non-standard, non-raw ways of using leadership? Uh, what are some good examples there? I can think of uh, one specifically. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I well, I, I want to go to, I mean, I always go to talents. Those are my most fun. Right. But <laughs> no, no, one, one specifically, I, th- I think I, I know what you're talking about. I think I think we need to talk about tactical planning. Yes. 
you know, the, the description for the skill hints at this. But as we said, leadership is the skill not just to convince people to follow your orders, but it's the skill to make decisions, mm. you know, in addition to getting people to carry them out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as such, it's not unreasonable to assume that you can use leadership to devise a plan of action that is sensible and will work if it's carried out. Mm. You know what? In Huli, in, in Star Wars, Age of Rebellion introduced knowledge warfare, yep. which kind of took that it took that spot when it comes to military planning, at least. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for our listeners in your settings, as you, you break out your knowledge skills, you, you may find that you also have a similar, you know, skill best suited to planning military campaigns or, or attack patterns. Mm. But please also consider that leadership can be used in this way. Mm. Um, narratively speaking, doing that would be about bringing resources to bear. It's it's not just the skill to give an impassioned speech. It's the skill to get your your war council around a table, um, you know, or a, a murder board with with you know red <laughs> yarn everywhere, right? And 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 tacked up pictures, you know, where you're you're leading a group hmm. to gather information and draw ideas together and devise the best plan. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I you know, as far as non-standard uses of leadership, I don't I mean, think people do that enough. Uh, no. Leadership is is kind of relegated to those weird social situations that maybe come up every fifth or sixth session, yeah. and powering talents. That's what most people get ranks of leadership for is to mm. power the awesome talents. Yeah. But you can do more with it. You can do tactical planning. Mm. And a lot could be said for if you're looking at a character's background. So, you know, that you've described exactly what they, they are. And let's say, for example, they have no military background, but they're suddenly thrust into a situation, especially like post-apocalyptic stuff, where they may have good leadership, but they've never had that military experience. And suddenly they are giving orders because of the experiences that they've had. Don't forget that when, uh, you know, you're, you're talking to soldiers in that regard who may not necessarily have their support, don't forget setback die. Uh, don't forget um, full upgrades to checks, depending on how hostile they are. Uh, and this is something that I always uh, mention um, is the, you know, the attitude of the people that you're trying to convince. Um, that always has to take into consideration because the... The difficulty of any sort of social check is always going to be in opposed for the most part, unless you're dealing with a large group and there's rules for uh, for that uh, in both uh, the core rules as well as the, the EPG as well. But don't forget attitude. Don't forget their demeanor, that that can actually even affect in, in both directions, whether it be that – I'll go back to Star Wars because it's probably what I'm the most familiar with. But if you've uh, accomplished X number of different – um, tasks for the rebellion uh, that uh, that have got you a certain level of notoriety. If you're ordering around people to uh, to enact a plan or, or whatever else, they're going to have a lot more respect for you. So therefore, you might be getting full upgrades for free, or you might be getting uh, additional boost die depending on what the circumstances are. So there's a lot to to check out there. Yeah, I I agree, and you know. Because leadership is typically an opposed check, mm -hmm. um, be I, I do have to say, in my experience, be leery of doing upgrades, okay? Yeah. That should be more of a last resort, but setback dice, setback dice, setback dice. Mm. Make knack for it leadership mean something. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, mm. 
make it mean something because the guy the guy with knack for it or the guy or gal with knack for it leadership mm-hmm. um is the character that is going to be able to easily overcome those you know situational barriers and attitudes uh or hostile attitudes that a certain group might have yeah um and you know make that make that purchase meaningful mm. yeah somebody like ripley for example uh would be a, a great example of someone who at the start was like probably didn't have knack for it uh, leadership, but certainly by the end of the film um, that she was giving orders and people were listening to her uh, and she was probably getting yep. some boost I thrown in there as well because of, uh, of what she'd done. And they, they now suddenly were believing everything that she was saying rather than it being, yeah, sure. Likely there's um, you know, people bursting out of people's chests. That's crazy talk. So, <laughs> but anyway, Of course, the easiest way for non-raw uses of the leadership skill is, as normal, custom talents. Now, as we've mentioned earlier, there are six talents exclusive to the core rulebook that deal with leadership. So as we do, let's look at a few new talents that we've created for those leaders and inspiring authority figures who love to get in there amongst the trenches. So, Chris, what's our first one? Oh, buddy. (laughs) <laughs> so our first our first talent I love this um, is called social influencer. Mm-hmm. It's a tier two. Mm-hmm. It has it, it, it is uh, activation is active action and is non ranked. Mm-hmm. Once an encounter, you can target an engaged ally and perform the social influencer action. No check is required. That ally will automatically add a number of advantage equal to your ranks in leadership to the results of the next social skill check they make that encounter. Mm. Um, you know, I, I really like coordinated assault. Yep. Um, but it applies, you know, I, I want something that would apply in a non-combative situation. Right. And I also really like the idea of a talent that represented leadership assisting another character without direct action, in this case, meaning an actual check. Right. Just literally, literally the glow of authority and leadership that's wafting off your character basically <laughs> rubs off on an ally, making their job easier. Yeah. And I thought it might be a great option for the, the leadership-heavy PC who, who still is not the party face. Yeah. Because we've all had those groups where you have a leadership-heavy PC – Who's not the face? The face is still the the the, the charm and deception monkey. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I think what's really cool here with this talent is that it is still an action. So that means that they're doing less on the battlefield, and but it's an immediate thing that uh, you know whether it be that they sort of uh, give double thumbs up to whoever it is that uh, you know is uh, in the the thick of it. Um, I just think that it's a really good talent. Um, whether it's tier two, I don't know. We can leave that up to the listeners to give us some feedback. And we have been getting really good feedback from our listeners with regards to some of these talents, uh, which is great to see as well. And as we always say, play test, play test, play test. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our next talent is called, it's kind of the opposite really, is Notorious Reputation. Now, it's a tier three. It's a passive activation. It's non-ranked, and once position, when your character needs to perform a coercion or negotiation check, they may instead use their leadership skill. Now, it's a simple and easy substitution talent, and it's designed to reflect those leaders 
whose reputation precedes them. You know, leadership can can often be an underutilized social skill. So it it also gives strong leadership characters a chance to shine in really diverse social encounters. It is fairly powerful as a dual skills substitution. Uh, so this was it. We really had to balance it to to make it that tier three position, and and the the once a session limitation is also sort of you know it, it's double limiting, I guess. And after all, your reputation can only precede you so far. You know, you can, <laughs> you can only push that uh, that point so many times before it just gets old, is what I'm saying. So, uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think. Um... You know, doing a substitution talent like this without a story point expenditure or a strain expenditure is risky. But no, I think I think I think costing it as a tier three and then just making it a once per session thing, it, it yeah, I think it it keeps it from being overpowered. I think. Yeah. Now our last talent that we suggest is coordinated assault improved. So uh, the improved version of coordinated assault, very excited for this. Um, whereas coordinated assault is tier two, the improved version is tier four. Mm. All right. Passive activation, non-ranked. Of course, your character must have purchased at least one rank of the coordinated assault talent to benefit from this talent. When your character uses the coordinated assault talent, you may instead grant affected allies a success to all combat checks they make until the end of your next turn instead of advantage mm. you know coordinated so you know they, they still have to be engaged yep, right true yep. um but you're granting them one success um which seems like a, a fair upgrade for a tier four talent i you know i we, we love doing improved versions of existing talents mm-hmm. um and i don't know this feels like a good advancement for the pc who loves coordinated assault mm. the benefit is very strong at plus one success yeah but it's a tier four talent with a limited time frame to use it, and and especially when it comes to ally positioning, is also circumstantial, yep. um, even in the heat of combat. So yeah. I still think it's fairly well cost. And I think that, um, you know, the coordinated assault, because it is a ranked talent, yes, it can expand that range out, but that's a lot of XP that you have to be sinking into that. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, Tier 4, I still think is, is a great use, even if you're only getting the, the one rank of coordinated assault, the the basic version. Um, I think that uh, this is a great add-on no matter where you are in the scale of coordinated assault generally. So, um, you know, if you've just dipped your toe into that talent once, I think that this is a a great investment for a Tier 4 talent, definitely. Yeah, and I'd be really interested to hear some playtest feedback from this. There may be a case made to make this Tier 5 because it is quite powerful. Yeah. if you have multiple ranks, but I think playtesting has to bear that out. And to that end, as we do with all of our talents, guys, you know, we've created these, but they haven't been playtested. We've created them for the show. So we actively invite you guys to get these talents on the table, playtest them and give us your feedback so we can adjust them. Mm. And Huli, if people want to see a written version of these talents, where oh, where can they go to find them? Absolutely. They can go onto our website, which is forgenesis.com, under the resources section, where they can find all of our previous episode show notes uh, that uh, that have things that we've created uh, on the show uh, in a written form, easily downloadable in PDF format, and it's totally free. And, uh, you know, as we say in each of those documents as well, take a look Play test these, 
we love creating these talents, but we really want to see them on other people's tables um, to uh, to get us that feedback. So, uh, so yeah, go and check those out. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, good discussion. I love leadership. Yes. It's it's underutilized. We we had some strong leadership usage uh, in in my most recent game of Genesis. Uh, you know, playing through Roll Twenty yep. of, of Dusters and Dragons, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had we had some fun. <laughs> <laughs> but holy, I think it's mm. time we transition our discussion. Yep. Pump the bellows and heat things up in the furnace mm. because we have a big topic to get into. Yeah, yeah we do absolutely. Let's go take a look. The furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, back in episode 15, we took a long look, and boy, was it long, (laughs) as Chris will attest, uh, as we took a look at the rules for vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game. And we really got to look under the hood, uh, and, and tonight we'll be continuing that with a look at vehicle combat. Now, as we mentioned in our last episode on vehicles, guys, we want to ensure that GMs and players alike can use the vehicle rules with ease. We want you to gain a better understanding of how the rules work so that you can best use them in your game sessions and also how to present them when you're crafting products for the Foundry. Yeah, that's right. And that means we'll be discussing how vehicle combat works, how to run it in a game, and the various rules that bring it all together. We'll also be giving you some great tips along the way so that it's just completely seamless in your games. Now, before starting this process, Huli, as we do, (laughs) we like to set the groundwork down for the rules. So, I mean, you know, can we, we we spent a whole episode going through that, but can we take just a few minutes to summarize and remind everyone what we discussed in the last episode, episode 15 on vehicles? That we can, Chris. But before we do that, as we do in the sequel episode topics, we need a bit of a boilerplate to set your expectations. So firstly, we spent a lot of time back in episode 15 as we went over the vehicle basics. How do they work? What do all the stat blocks mean? And what things can a pilot or a rider do in a vehicle, along with a brief discussion on other things that players can do in larger ships as part of their crew. Now, We'll touch base briefly on those shortly, but we recommend that before you listen to this episode, you really need to have listened to episode 15 to make sense of much of what we're going to cover tonight, including the rules we've developed and our decisions behind them. So basically, we're going to proceed assuming you've already got that episode in your mind, as we'll pick up right where episode 15 left off. Okay. Well, Huli, let's review. All right. So, firstly, we went over what skills a character uses to operate a vehicle and, in some cases, creatures. Now, we discussed that uh, these are called control skills, uh, and they include driving, which is used for ground vehicles um, like cars and tanks and trucks and mechs, piloting, which which is used for vehicles that fly like airplanes, helicopters and spaceships, and operating, which is used for larger vehicles where multiple crew members, such as on battleships, sailing ships, and and space cruisers. Now, we did discuss that in a different section than the furnace. We actually discussed it in die casting. So if you're wondering where that bit is, it's in episode 15, but it's just at the start because we kind of themed the, the whole sections of our of the show we also discussed that in some cases athletics and coordination and riding if that's in your setting 
could also be used as control skills depending on the creature or vehicle with those um, being, you know, small one-person powered vessels uh, like a small rowboat or some sort of a wind sail or, or something like that that only needs one person to, to operate. We also explained that a vehicle has stat blocks um, similar to characters uh, or NPCs. And we spent a lot of time diving into that, all the various attributes, you know, silhouette, how large a vehicle is, you know, max speed, how, how fast the vehicle can go, can go at, at top speed, more or less. Um, handling, how agile the vehicle is. Defense, you know, shielding or other technology that protects the vehicle. Armor, how tough the vehicle is. Um, hull trauma threshold and system strain threshold, you know, the vehicle's sturdiness and resistance to damage, its its capacity to endure the rigors of heavy use. Mm-hmm. And then we went into all the secondary characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> now, we're not going to go through all of them, but they're basically control skills. So it's what skill you use to operate the vehicle. It's complement, how many crew there are, uh, passenger capacity, how many passengers it can hold. It's consumables, so how long it can last out there without replenishing itself or without needing to be replenished, sorry, Um, unless you've got one big giant robot that does everything itself. Anyway, um, you've then got encumbrance capacity, so how much it can carry, the price and rarity, how much it costs, how hard it is to find, and then the weapons, bang, bang. (laughs) In a summary. Bang, 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 or pew, 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 as the case may be. Um, Now, one of the other things in episode 15 we spent a fair bit of time talking about, and I think it's worth bringing up again because it really, you really need to have this at the top of mind when we talk about starship combat or ship combat, the mm-hmm. vehicle combat that we're going to talk about tonight. Yep. Yep. Um, we talked about range bands, uh, which is, is how far away things are from each other. And this is something we're going to also discuss in depth later. Um, in this discussion as it pertains to our own special rules. Mm-hmm. These range bands, again, uh, are split into six categories. We have engaged, which is this sort of special type of range band within short. We have short range, medium, long, extreme, and strategic, which is a special range band, brand new, that was introduced in Genesis. Mm-hmm. We also talked about last episode that each range band increasingly gets larger than the previous one. Mm-hmm. You know, engage lies within short range. Medium range is larger than short range. Long range is, you know, larger than medium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, and these range bands are, like many things in Genesis, very abstract. And what I mean is that by plotting them out on paper is really unnecessary and is seen by some as a detriment to the game. Although a lot of us are able to do it successfully with maps. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, what, what if, I mean, what if you're, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of using maps because I love how maps look, yep. you know, and I'm just able to say, yeah, from this end to that end of the map is, you know, long range. Hmm. And from this end to that end is medium range. And from this point to this point is short and, hmm. you know, medium or extreme or whatever. Yep. I mean, how do you, how do you handle that? Well, look, um, I mean, I've got a, a different way of doing it and we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Um, but, uh, you know, maps are a fantastic way just to, uh, you know, unless you're dealing with maybe two vehicles or, or something like that, um, very, very small numbers, there's no real need because you can basically, you know, work out where everything is as you go. But um, maps are great, especially when we're talking about the way that we have to be now um, until COVID-19 um, disappears and it will end eventually. But a lot of people are now moving over to Roll20, Fantasy Grounds or, or any one of a number of online tools to be able to run their games. 
So when people are talking abstractly, um, it, uh, it can be a little bit easier if you are using maps. And, uh, you know, some people use them with squares, obviously, from D&D, and there's a, there's a lot of, of uh, resources out there with those grids still on them. But there are other ones that are out there that don't have the grids on them. And I know that um, I think it's Christopher West with a lot of his maps that if you've got the downloaded version, which you can um, get off uh, of GameMastery.com, is that you can remove the uh, – in the, the PDF, I think it is, you can actually remove the, the grid as well, which means then that you can just use it in an open sort of space. And it makes it easier to go, well, this is short range and this is long range, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is yeah. easier, I think, um, even if you're only using it just as a rough guide. I mean, on uh, a piece of, of, of butcher's paper or, or art paper that, you know, is fairly large, you can just draw circles on uh, to say where things are is another way to do that and do it quite successfully. Uh, so, but it is important, and we'll get onto this later on, as I said. But it is important to know where things are, especially when you start talking about uh, characters and vehicles in the same space. It's one of the things that that really confuses people. Uh, you know, is that according to the rules, distances between characters and objects and vehicles are this relative distance. Uh, and this is talked about on page 107 of the core rules, where they have an entire sidebar on the top right of the page, which covers off on this notion of relative distances. And it's something that you, uh, that if you're using a map, it can really help you so that you don't have to necessarily think so ab- abstractly. And, you know, abstract thinking is not for everyone. And we have to be mindful of that when we're on a table um, with people who just can't, for whatever reason, visualize that space and need something to to show them yeah so chris explain to us a little bit about this this relative distancing that that um, they talk about in the rules yeah i mean it's it's when you play it is a ridiculously easy concept to understand Mm. it's hard to describe yes and so when you read it that's where a lot of the confusion comes in i mean as huli said on page 107 the the term relative when they talk about distancing means things that are relative distance to each other. So I, I think about it this way. If if a character is medium range from two objects, one blue and one red object, both objects are on the other side of a large hanger. Mm-hmm. Okay. If the character moves towards the red one, their position changes relative to the blue one. It's very simple logic. Yeah. So if I, if I take two maneuvers, uh, you know, two move maneuvers towards the red object. Maybe now I'm an engaged. I'm now having taken two move maneuvers. I'm engaged with the red object, Mm. you know, move number one, medium to short, move number two, short to engaged. However, I've moved away from the blue object. So I'm now at medium or long range from it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's not confusing at all. Um, Look, it, it is something which is really hard to describe, and, it, and it's, it's always something that, that um, I can teach at the table. And I've, I've had some difficulty in explaining this process to people online. Uh, when you've only got a, a voice medium and you don't really have, unless you're using something like Roll20 or um, you know one of the other ones. I, I just use Roll20, so that's what I'll refer to, but I'm meaning everything else. I'm not just being biased. That's just what I've chosen to use. So this process does confuse some players, and we'll get back to that 
uh, a little bit later, as I said, um, and I've got a very, very simple fix, which does make so much more sense. It wasn't just my idea, I've got to point out, um, and it's been one that's been done in other games as well, but it's really, really useful and it can save you a whole heap of uh, hassle. Many people will know it um, back from when I was involved in the Dice Pool podcast, um, and it's called Zones, but we'll get on to more of that later. But for now, all that you need to know is that it takes a number of maneuvers to get from one range band to another. The greater the distance moved, the greater the number of maneuvers it takes to get there. Um, And it's also when you move away from one object and you move towards another object, obviously the, the other object that you're not moving towards is going to be moving further away. So it means that the range band is going to increase. It's as simple as that. If I'm if I'm on the football field and yep. I'm standing in the middle of the football field, mm-hmm. I am at long range from both goals. Right. Okay. If I move towards one goal and I'm now at medium range to that goal, mm-hmm. I am obviously further away, extreme range from the other goal. Right. That I mean, that's all we're trying to say. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so uh, I think that yeah. pretty much covers off on that. <laughs> now, we, we, we got to spend time, ta- we're really spending time reviewing range and movement, guys, because it really matters for combat. And yeah. one of the things we also touched on back in episode 15 was the fact that as opposed to Star Wars, characters and vehicles share the same space. No pun intended. <laughs> um, the difference, though, is that vehicles move in, in range bands while characters move in these segments of movements called move maneuvers. And, uh, you know, we then talked about speed and, and forced movement. Uh, you know, the current speed of a vehicle determines how many range bands a vehicle travels uh, with a fantastic table on page 221 of the core rules that was modified in the last errata from FFG. Now, Mm -hmm. that table lists the number of range bands a vehicle must move during a turn, um, either at the beginning of of their turn or at the end of the turn. And that's just called forced movement. We then talked about steering, um, which is the common term when when a vehicle is controlled. Um, uh, Planetary scale, the 10 to 1 rule, and then we explained a pilot-only action and a pilot-only maneuver in terms of what those are. Yep. Uh, and then we went over the types of actions and maneuvers that you can perform in a turn, which we're not going to summarize. Uh, for that, you can go back and listen to episode 15. <laughs> <laughs> that you can. And then lastly, we briefly went over uh, the table of additional vehicle actions, uh, table 3.2-7 um, on page 229 of the core rulebook, uh, which offers numerous options for players to perform uh, in a vehicle or vessel that can help the pilot or hinder the enemy. So all of that, Huli. Yes. <laughs> leads us to vehicle combat, I hope. Yeah, it does, yes. <laughs> so with all of that information, and there is a lot that we've summarized, let's now see how all of this comes together when your players decide to take on the Empire or race through the streets of downtown, drifting their cars in high-speed chases or plodding across the desert in their rickety old mech or something like that when they come face-to-face with a mechanized platoon of the opposing clan. Um, so what do you say, Chris? Let's have some fun. Uh, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. All right. So first, where does a vehicle encounter begin? So if you are running a campaign or a story or even designing an adventure for the Foundry, for example, where do you start? 
Now, I can I think that probably the best way to to describe this is to is to talk about some really cool scenes that we see in TV that we see in movies um, that that really sort of encapsulate vehicles and uh, show them you know moving at breakneck speed through difficult terrain and and stuff like that that uh, to really sort of show. Um, how you can run a a successful encounter in a campaign or um, in your submission to the foundry. So, what I think we'll do is we'll we'll come up with a few ideas and then we'll discuss them as uh, you know uh, how they sort of appear, and then we'll choose one of those as an example. What do you think, Chris? Sure. All right. So the first one that comes to mind um, is it's not really a vehicle chase, but um, you know a foot chase starts as a foot chase, and then for whatever reason it turns into a vehicle chase because they're either they go and steal a motorbike or steal a vehicle or, or or something like that, and then you know the bad guys are following them in black vans or something like that. You know what comes to mind for me for this? Mm-hmm. One of the one of the only really good things about this film, and it was. A truly one of the most amazing pieces of action cinema ever filmed right. was what started off as a foot chase and then morphed into the most awesome car chase and highway fight scene ever in the matrix reloaded. Yes. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> where, where it's the epitome of how Genesis vehicle rules and how they differ from star Wars rules matter. Mm. And you can do it because what you literally have are personal scale characters in some cases, literally jumping from vehicles to vehicles, mm-hmm. all right, and at the same time, driving cars and motorcycles down a packed freeway, shooting guns and using samurai swords. <laughs> Does it? I mean, this is everything. Everything the rules can account for. <laughs> yes, it, a Juno Reactor did the soundtrack for for that film, and yeah. I think I think I think the third one as well, and. Mm. Um, that was actually a remix of one of my favorite Juno Reactor tracks, which is um, uh, Mona Lisa Overdrive. Right, and yes. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> How many times have you used that soundtrack during a chase scene in a game? Quite a lot uh, for uh, me. Way, way too many freaking <laughs> times. Let's anything Juno Reactor does, especially if you're a if you're an Android fan and you 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 love Shadow of the Beanstalk. Yep. Um, Juno Reactor should just be your standard soundtrack for anything Cyberpunk. Uh, cyberpunk <laughs> Agreed. So to, to bring it more sort of, um, you know, historical, I guess, uh, you know, you could have, you know, a battle between um, mastered trimers uh, as they, you know, battle for, for control over Troy to use the Age of Myth campaign setting from the EPG to, uh, to use that. I think that that would be absolutely fantastic as well, especially if you've got sort of almost, you know, let's face it, they're superheroes for, for the most part, you know, jumping between uh, ships. Uh, as they uh, as they battle it out, you know, on Pegasus or, or whatever it is that you're using, I think that'd be kind of cool as well. What about some others? Well, honestly, you can upscale that a few centuries um, and get to Pirates <laughs> of the Caribbean, um, yeah. where you've got you know sailing ship combat with cannons, where you get to engage range and it's boarding action time, baby, <laughs> and you know can can jump from vehicle combat to personal combat in the scan- span of a single turn. Yeah, that'd be fantastic too. And of course, we can't forget Star Wars either. 
<laughs> because you know battles over planets and uh, you know for control of of different things. You know, you you look at the likes of uh, the latest episode of Clone Wars. Um, no spoilers. Um, is uh, is absolutely fantastic. So uh, you know that's any of the of the big battles from Clone Wars is a perfect example of of where you could start an, a vehicle encounter uh, where they're uh, you know coming in at uh, hot um, into the planet and then all of a sudden the the planetary defenses start kicking in. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Star Wars is is you know obviously classic for that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but any era, any setting, vehicles always had a, a tinge of fun. You know, um, you can have you know dog fights uh, between two dirigibles high above the clouds <laughs> with steampunk, you know, uh, you know Tesla cannons yep. or yep. coil, you know, coil <laughs> weapons. Honestly, having just run a fantasy western weird west game, mm. um, I'm sorry, train heist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another one, sort of, if we start looking at uh, something like Mad Max or something like that, you know, what about attacking an, an enemy stronghold in, in a desert sort of wasteland type thing um, in our post-apocalyptic setting that we've been doing for Magic, uh, where, uh, you know, uh, raiders who've kidnapped our, our leader's daughter, uh, that, uh, you know, the, they're defending their lair with, with chopper bike patrols or something like that, and uh, the PCs are going in to, uh, to take that out. What do you reckon about that? Oh, I was going <laughs> to continue with some other ideas, but I think that's perfect. With, with everything we've been doing yep. with, our, our, with magic in our post-apocalyptic setting, as you said, <laughs> um, why don't we continue with this theme? You know? and, and guys, as we go through vehicle combat with you, <laughs> um, we're going to be giving you some hard and fast examples. So why not use this as our example and our theme? No arguments from me whatsoever. <laughs> so I like to keep the theme, so it's all good Dude. for me. <laughs> okay, okay, then I'm th- th- okay. Then I'm thinking, okay, um, me and like a gunner right. could be in like in a wasteland buggy versus a couple of minions on on those trail bikes. <laughs> so the wasteland buggy from EBG. That sounds yes. Good choice. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Now, before we start, for our Magic episodes thus far, we've had our rules of Magic Reskin, uh, and I know that you guys have all found it fairly um, helpful, uh, so I think it's only apt for us to have vehicle combat tips. What do you reckon, Chris? I think that is very wise. <laughs> awesome. So, our first tip is this. Vehicle combat tip number one, personal and vehicle combat all work the same way. Now, the great thing about vehicle combat is it works exactly like standard personal combat as listed on page 95 of the core rulebook. So you don't need to really learn anything new there. Um, But as a refresher uh, of that, because we've not actually had an episode talking about combat, uh, it really follows five uh, a simple five-step process. So the first part is step one, which is determine initiative. Now, this is a simple case of rolling cool or vigilance or whichever skill is allowed thanks to a number of talents which are in the game. The, the GM then notes the number of successes and the number of advantages from each participant in the combat. And remember that some vehicles may have bonuses to initiative roles thanks to special targeting scanners or other technology, including also some sort of talents uh, that you can also use. Step two, which is assign initiative slots. Now, the GM then lists the highest number of successes 
And once you've done that in descending order, because obviously there can be ties and whatever else, you've got tiebreakers, which are your advantages. And list them as PC or NPC, not specifically that character and that NPC. It's just PC, NPC. If you've got an NPC and a PC who have three successes each, if the PC has uh, two advantages and the NPC has no advantages, the PC would be going first. Uh, And the same would obviously apply in reverse. So that's your tiebreaker. But if they're all the same, so the PC will always go first. So once you've done that, that's your initiative order for combat. Now remember that minions in a group roll as one, not individuals. Now the same applies uh, to vehicles. If you have a squad of minion bikers, for example, which we're going to be using, uh, they all use the same initiative slot and roll only once per group. All right. So we've got um, uh, three more steps. So, Chris, would you like to go through step three? Yeah. Step three, the participants take turns. Um, Obviously, what you guys are used to. Players and GMs then take turns in initiative order uh, with any player taking any PC slot that they've determined Mm -hmm. and any NPC taking an NPC slot. Every character, every minion group, rival, or nemesis takes one turn after which the next slot listed in initiative order takes their turn. Hmm. And once you've gone through all the turns, that leads us to step four, Mm -hmm. which is the round ends. Mm -hmm. Um, This process occurs until every participant is acted, um, after which the turn ends and starts again. Mm -hmm. Um, If there are are more opponents left or the PCs are not yet eliminated, you go back to step three. And eventually, the encounter ends. Step five. Once Mm -hmm. every PC, NPC is eliminated, surrenders, or is incapacitated, or the same applies to the PCs, the encounter typically ends ends right uh, holy this this i mean this is all how a turn operates mm-hmm. but everything we've just said shouldn't be a shock to anyone who's been playing the system it's pretty much identical to personal scale initiative and how you start combat mm. i mean i mean considering that is this much different from normal combat at all not at all um and as we mentioned in vehicle tip number one it all works the same um you know with a few minor changes. And we also, you know, talked about this earlier in our review and at length in episode 15. The comparisons between characters and vehicles in combat is just basically about the physicality of them. So characters have wound thresholds. Vehicles have hull thresholds. Um, characters have strain thresholds. Vehicles have system strain thresholds. Characters have soak. Vehicles have armor. And when it comes to critical injuries, and we'll get onto this later, critical injuries are not called critical injuries when it comes to vehicles. They're called critical hits. So you have to just keep... Those are the only things that change. Defense is exactly the same. Uh, Silhouette, you do have to consider silhouette, but silhouette is still silhouette. There's no changes there. So just keep all all of those uh, in mind throughout the process. But remembering that Genesis is designed more so than Star Wars was, And this is the reason why we always recommend that if you are going to run combat, vehicle combat in your Star Wars game, flip over to Genesis because it's made it all on the same scale and will make it easier for you. So just keep those in mind throughout that process. So let's use our example Mm -hmm. of a wasteland vehicle combat encounter (laughs) that we just talked about. Um, and, And let's start. We So what? We roll initiative for everybody, right? Exactly as you would basically any encounter. So, you know, when developing a, a product for the foundry in the form of an adventure or if you're running a game at a convention, 
And this is something that I've learned from you, Chris, is that you might consider listing the pre-rolled initiative for all NPCs in the encounter. Now, this basically yeah. just speeds up play more than anything else, but it's really, really useful. Even if it's not in a game that you're running, that it, you've purchased a game off the foundry, and uh, you're you're running it, and you have not, and you're just running it for your, your group, and you know what the NPC stats are, so pre-roll them. Just put a post-it note in the in the game with those pre-rolled things. It's going to make that that process. It's, it may only so you know. Uh, solve a problem of maybe a minute maybe two while you're going through and rolling up the npcs but that's one or two minutes that you can be really sitting in and and having fun with with your players so uh, you know i would highly recommend that now chris let's get this example started because you know i'm dying to (laughs) to be honest um so i think for for this what i'll do is i'll have two groups of three minions so I'll be rolling once for each group and you'll be rolling for, well, for you. And let's say, you know, you're gonna. Mm-hmm. What do you reckon? That that your character has perhaps an agility of three, a presence of two? Okay. Two's in, in basically everything else. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, let's just keep it simple for the purposes of the encounter. I mean, yeah. so I want to know agility and presence. Yep. Uh, let's see, uh, for initiative purposes. Um, and then for skills, I'd say cool of one driving of two and mm-hmm. gunnery one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think my gunner would have the same stats, but I think her skills would be cool one driving one and gunnery two. Cause she's yep. obviously the gunner, yep. you know, uh, because we want to track it. Let's also give each of us a strain threshold of 12. Yep. Makes sense. Now my minions are going to have uh, a three in agility, a one in presence, and they're going to have twos across everything else. But really, as you said, we only need, uh, for this purpose, we only need agility and presence. And we'll talk about why in a tick. Their, their group skills, I think they're going to be athletics, because I know what I want to do with them. Uh, brawl, driving, melee, and ranged heavy. Um, Whoa, that's a lot of minion group well, skills. <laughs> well, these guys are like the, the, the ones who are defending the base. So I feel that that's... You know, you're probably, well, I mean, we could go into creating NPCs at a later stage. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's what I'm going to go with at this point. Um, I might remove Brawl if, uh, if we want to, you know, make it easier for everyone. Um, but, uh, you know, each minion will have a passenger uh, and they're going to be armed with a pipe rifle, which will be from the post apocalyptic setting in the EPG. Um, and just something simple like a knife which is out of the core rules. Okay. So let me roll. So you want me to roll for the PCs, yep. uh, the, two, the, the, the driver and the gunner, and you want to roll for the NPCs? Yep. Sounds good to me. All right. Let me get my dice. All right. right. All right. First roll. Booyaka. Nice. What did you get? Uh, first one was 2-2. Two, two. Nice. Two success, two advantage. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, second roll was zero and two, zero success. <laughs> That's all right. My NPCs got one, one, and zero, two. So, um, yeah, my NPCs suck. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, basically, what happens is, is that, um, and what we're going to do during this process is we're going to slow combat right down so that we can sort of step you through each process. You would never run combat this way. 
Uh, but it's just going to make it a little bit easier for you when we're doing this process so, um, so that you can understand more than anything else. Um, so once you've done that, you work out your order of initiative, taking the highest number of successes, listing each PC or NPC in descending order, as we mentioned earlier. So our initiative order is going to be PC, NPC, PC, NPC. Uh, because even though one of the NPCs and, and one of the PCs rolled the same uh, and the tiebreakers uh, for advantages were equal, the PCs are always going to beat the NPCs. Right. All right. So then in initiative order, uh, characters are going to take one action and one maneuver um, or two maneuvers to exchange their action for a maneuver or they're going to do one action and two maneuvers and they spend two personal strain to take an additional maneuver. Now, when piloting a vehicle, though, you still get to do those things, but you are limited to the capabilities of the vehicle. Now, what I mean by that is that a pilot can only perform one pilot-only action and one pilot-only maneuver. Now, we did talk about that in episode 15. But a pilot can always perform a second pilot-only maneuver, right? It just it just causes the vehicle to system strain. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, you know, vehicles are, they're basically inanimate objects, let's face it. And so they can't swap out actions for maneuvers like, uh, like a character can. Um, it's the characters who control them instead who do the hard work. But you can only push a vehicle's engine or their tires or servos or, or whatever only so far. So all of those components, for want of a better term, represent the vehicle's system strain. So when that pilot performs a second pilot-only maneuver in the vehicle, it causes the vehicle to system strain, no matter whether you take the, the pilot-only action or not. And if you look at most small vehicles, system strain is a really valuable asset that you don't want to abuse. Mm. The other thing to remember here, and this is one of the points of confusion for some players out there, the pilot may have to suffer to personal strain if they intend to do an action as well. So it's like if if all I do is two pilot-only maneuvers in the turn, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have to suffer to personal strain because I've just taken two maneuvers and like downgrade my action to a maneuver. Yep. But the vehicle will suffer to system strain because two pilot-only maneuvers were taken. Exactly. Comparatively, if I do an action and two pilot-only maneuvers, mm-hmm. the two system strain is suffered from two pilot-only maneuvers, but I also have to take two personal strain because I personally chose to do an action plus two maneuvers. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So I know that I can move and I know what it costs to do that. What's next? All right. So the next thing to look at is how fast the vehicles are traveling. And you would work out that, obviously, at the start of combat, since most vehicle combat doesn't start at a stationary position, although I'll admit that sometimes it can. Uh, and we, we mentioned one of those before, where you're in a foot chase and then all of a sudden you're, you jump in a vehicle. Well, you're starting at zero. Um, so, but that brings me to my next tip, which is vehicle combat tip number two. Start vehicle combat at speed two or less, depending on the max speed of the vehicle. So as I said before, vehicles are moving all the time unless they have landed, moored or parked or whatever term applies to the vehicle coming to a complete stop. Why one or two? Well, at, at those speeds, there are no other effects at play. 
As soon as you reach speed three or more, control checks start upgrading your uh, your checks. And that's just not what you know a, a system patrol craft or a police cruiser would be doing when it's just performing normal maneuvers. They're not doing crazy action stunts. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, they're not going into that. That's crazy speed. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. So, you know, for one of a better term, we'll call it cruising speed or patrol speed or, or whatever you want to call it. In combat, you should avoid starting from a standstill where possible. Well, that can be cool. Um, the cool thing here is that uh, the speed is appropriate for all vehicles um, and vessels since they all have a minimum uh, maximum speed of one. So to always have like your, your big cruisers and whatever else, if they've got a max speed of one, chances are they're probably at their max speed. Um, or they're stationary. It just depends on what they're doing. Um, but when it comes to uh, you know your, your faster vehicles, speed of two is around about where we start. Now there are ex- there are as I mentioned there are exceptions to this rule. So Chris, can we quickly discuss what what some of those examples are? Yeah, we've already hinted at most of them. I yeah. mean, there's there's scenes where where the pilots rush to their fighters during the battle. Mm. Okay, they're going to mm-hmm. start they're going to start at zero if yeah. the battle's already started. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you know, I'm on, I'm on a station that's being attacked or our ship's being attacked right now. There's snub fighters outside. They're doing strafing runs on the cruiser right now, and we've got to get to our ships and head out and and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another great example, you know, on the run, the PCs jump into a hot wired car uh, while being chased by agents in black vans. Yeah. So at that point. They're already, you know, their their opponents are already moving. They're at zero speed. Yeah. Um, and the other common uh, example is a race. Mm. Um, you know, a race by definition, all participants are going to start from a standstill. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Um, but you know, even then, you might for those examples, you might actually use like a skill challenge uh, to allow the pilots or, or the drivers to get into their vehicles before they blast out into the street or into space or, or whatever. In, in that case, your vehicles may start at speed zero, which means that the characters have to look at spending some system strain uh, to get into the fight quickly, possibly using the accelerate pilot-only maneuver, um, or yeah. they could just do it slowly and just do it as their first action to, or their first maneuver, sorry, to accelerate to speed one. And then from that point, they then do a, uh, a move maneuver or something like that to, to do a reposition. But we'll get on to that in a tick. And, you know, skill challenge is a good suggestion. But keep in mind, guys, that if you're going to use a skill challenge, that's a scene in and of itself. Yeah. And yeah. In, in other words, an encounter. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it would be an encounter leading into another encounter. And that can be really cool. Just realize what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> and if your goal is just to quickly get into the fight, have them go through and just make some normal checks. You don't need to go into a full scale challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. With vehicle tip, combat tip number two, we, we know the speed the vehicles start at, but how far away should they be from each other from a GM's perspective? What's, mm. what's our good rule of thumb here when we're creating the encounter? Yeah. Well, look, um, that brings me to tip number three, which is uh, vehicle combat tip number three, start vehicle combat at extreme or strategic range unless you're in a chase, which should start at medium or long range. Now, this is actually a rule I learned from you again, Chris, <laughs> on the Order 66, um, when a slight, uh, you know, with a, with a bit of a change to, you know, mix 
with the forced movement rules, which is in Genesis, but it's not in Star Wars. So as we mentioned earlier, vehicles that travel at certain speeds must move certain distances. Uh, So, you know, a speed zero, it doesn't move. Speed one, one range band. Speed two, two range bands. Uh, Speed three to four, three range bands. And a speed of five is four range bands. Now, I know that uh, I also mentioned chases, and this is something we'll definitely look at later. We won't cover it in this episode um, because we know how long these can be. Um, but uh, in our example, if we use the Wasteland buggy for uh, from the Expanded Players Guide, for example, um, its max speed is four. So that would mean that if you were at max speed, you would travel three range bands. Now, to put that into perspective... That's moving from short to extreme range in a single turn. And that's something you do for free. It's something that just happens. It's forced movement. A character, for example, would need to take specifically five maneuvers worth of movement across multiple rounds to to even equal that distance uh, if they're on foot. It's huge. And these vehicles are doing it as for free as part of their, uh, their, their turn because the Genesis rules use inertia uh, and, and represent that as force movement um, because yes. that makes sense and it's been playtested and it works really, really well. It means that you're not having situations where, for whatever reason, you have to represent a character doing uh, in a vehicle doing loop-de-loop while sitting in the same range band as it was with Star Wars, because they didn't need to move range bands unless they said they were moving range bands. And and this is and this is why vehicle combat tip number three, starting at extreme or strategic range, is so important. Because with very little effort on a single turn, a character can ramp up their speed, even if they're starting relatively, even if they're even if they're at zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. They can amp their speed up without any difficulty and immediately get two range bands worth of movement, which is immediately going to close the gap. Yeah. And and that's the thing to remember here because what and, and this is I guess a question too as well. That forced movement that you are forced to take, hmm. when does that happen? Can that be at the beginning of your turn or can it be at the end of your turn? It can happen in either. So ah. basically you can take your shot. You can then take evasive action or whatever you need to do. You know, deflect is double front if you want to go down that path. And yes, before anybody corrects me, uh, I know that there are no shield facings in Genesis. Um, and, and then you can take your force movement. Or you can take the force movement, get yourself into range, and then flat out with your weapons. And this is why I suggest starting combat at extreme or strategic range. Since the, the the vehicles do cover that distance really, really quickly. Now, the exception to the rule where you can move at the beginning or end of your turn is when nobody is flying or driving the vehicle. So if the driver is unconscious or if the driver has been thrown out of the vehicle or something like that, um, or when nobody decides to take control of the vehicle, uh, when that happens, the vehicle moves at the end of the round and moves at its forced movement rate in a straight line. Now, of course, if it hits something, well, it's time for a collision, but we'll get onto that later. Now, if you want to move further than your forced movement, you can do that with a reposition pilot-only manoeuvre. Um, so you can actually go that one extra range band longer. 
But the other interesting thing is, is that, um, and this really comes from Sam Stewart, is that you can use reposition to also move within short range or to move to engaged range. So, um, you know, that, that's an important thing to remember, that, um, uh, that it, it's up to, the wording says, it's up to one uh, additional range band. So you can move within that. And that can just mean, you know, you're docking with a ship or something like that. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. Okay, so now that we've established the speed and the distance, the vehicle I'm using, the buggy, mm-hmm. is at speed two. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what do you want to say? Is it, are we starting at strategic range away yep. from the minions yep. on their Makes bikes? Sense. Yep, sounds good. And, you know, maybe just on the edge of strategic. So, you know, you, you're still within, you, you're just seeing those, you know, glints in the distance. Yeah, through through the haze of the desert, yep. uh, heat wafting up. Awesome. And can we call them <laughs> choppers instead yep. with like yep, the, with, with the dust cloud trailing behind them? Yep, that sounds cool. <laughs> now, look, to, to paint the picture a little bit better, the riders are all, you know, dressed in tarnished leathers with, uh, you know, black spiked helmets, you know, each resting back in their seats, their arms outstretched as they, as they twist on the controls, you know, as they're, they're hurtling towards you. Uh, and they've got these passengers, um, each with, you know, armed with these makeshift rifles, um, you know, and they're in harnesses mounted at, uh, at the rear of the chopper. Sound good? Cool. I love it. <laughs> okay. So as we established with the, the initiative roles, um, the PCs get to go first. So what do you want to do, Chris? Oh, well, obviously, I'm going to have my, my pilot, my driver go first, because um, obviously the gunner can't do anything at strategic <laughs> range. Um, so with speed two, I have to move two range bands due to force movement. Yep. Um, and if they're strategic now, that will get me to long range. Mm-hmm. I could take a reposition maneuver to get into medium range, which would be better for my gunner, but they have to move towards me anyway before my gun, before she gets to go. Yep. So I think I'm going to take my force movement first, and it, and after my force movement, I will accelerate at that point mm-hmm. to take the buggy up to speed three. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I looking at the stat block, I really don't like the armor on this thing. It's it's zero, <laughs> folks. Um, so I will take the boost defenses action mm-hmm. from table uh, 3.2-17, additional vehicle actions, page 299. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try it. That is a hard mechanics check, and it will give the vehicle an extra point of defense, uh, but only if it has a defense rating already, which the buggy does of one. Yep. Um, now, Huli, we didn't establish my character's intellect and mechanics, so I mean, can we say what? Two and two? Two intellect, two mechanics? Yep, that sounds fine. Um, but, um, you know, you, you did mention the dust before uh, as well, so, you know, that's going to be an environmental factor. So, uh, you know, when we're, we're talking about difficulty, um, you're going to be adding an extra setback die for that as well. Uh, well, can I, can I push you to say my character has <laughs> knack for it mechanics? Well, look, I'll give you a choice. How does this sound? So knack for it piloting or knack for it mechanics? It's your choice. Uh, <laughs> um, well, hopefully driving, not piloting. But, oh, yes, um, yes, yes. Pilot, yeah. Um, um, <laughs> You know what? You strike a hard bargain. Uh, you're you're firm but fair, GM Hooli. Um, I will stick with knack knack for it driving. Right. Okay. <laughs> so that's a that's a hard check 
Uh, yep. with three purple and a setback die and two yellows. Okay, here I go. Wow. That is a failed check. Oops. With a triumph. <laughs> I love rolls like that. Um, <laughs> so what are you going to do with the triumph, though? Uh, okay, okay, okay. Um, so, I, uh, well, uh, well I, I was trying to line up a good shot for my gunner, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I must have gotten distracted with all the dust. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and yes, I did roll a failure on the setback. <laughs> um, so perhaps the dust has obscured our exact position. Mm-hmm. And I can use my triumph to have them upgrade the difficulty for hitting us. Mm. That's awesome. Awesome. So um, that's something that's really important, listeners. So what you have to do is you you have to listen to the descriptions your players give and uh, hone in on that to give yourself ways, you know, to to add setback die. Um, And it also gives, uh, as Chris mentioned as well, he's then used the dust to, uh, to, to help him work out how to spend that triumph. Uh, you know, for, for people who've never used the uh, the vehicle rules before, and this really applies to anything within uh, within Genesis. Listen to the the descriptions that are being used, and then you can manipulate that. Sometimes for your betterment, and sometimes the GM can actually work uh, against you as well. Um, and so. honestly, Huli, that brings mm. us to vehicle combat tip number four. While we're mm. at it, yeah. And what is that? Vehicle combat tip number four. Have stuff get in the way. Yep. This this happens all the time in film and television, along with any cool story involving chases. Mm. Um, combat out in the open is boring. Mm. Um, placing things on the battlefield that get in the character's way makes it interesting. It gives the environment a life of its own. Mm. Um, now, th- this could be difficult or just plain hazardous terrain often. Uh, with the appropriate modifiers to movement or or forcing participants to make appropriate checks. Hmm. No matter no matter what, though, make sure that when you're designing your encounter, you have some idea of what things can be added narratively through threat and despair, or just because the story goes that way. Hmm. Um, in short, force players to make a dangerous driving action whenever you can, and don't forget, as you say, Huli, the almighty setback die. Indeed. All right, Chris, where were we? <laughs> well, um, I went and failed with a triumph, and I believe it's mm-hmm. now the NPC's turn. Hmm. Um, so, they are at long range at this point. Um, so, obviously, they'll need to try and find your position in amongst all the dust. And the best way for that uh, is to get into the dust and start firing randomly if they need to. Um, so, the pilots do their forced movement um, because they're also at speed too. Um, and uh, so they uh, get into short range. So basically it goes long, medium, and short. Uh, So they're not going to do anything crazy just yet, uh, but the passengers with their pipe rifles will fire into the haze of dust. Now they're going to be part of the one minion group because they're kind of just operating, they just have gunners, and it makes it easier to, to do things this way. Well, Huli, this might be a good time to talk about weapons on vehicles, no? Yeah, absolutely. And so weapons on a vehicle have a number of elements. We talked about this in, in episode 15. Um, and it's going to be the weapon's firing arc, it's damage, the critical rating of the weapon, uh, the, the range of the weapon, and then the weapon's special qualities. 
Um, so if we're looking at the buggy, um, it has two weapons. It has the scrap shooter cannon uh, and the grill-mounted light machine gun. Now, the first is a vehicle weapon with uh, stats of it has a forward arc, um, it has a left arc, and it has a right arc. So it's almost a turret. Uh, then we have uh, gunnery is the skill which is being used. Uh, a damage of only one, uh, but we'll get onto that in a tick, I'm sure. Um, a critical of four, range of medium. Uh, so you really needed to get into that close range in the first place. Uh, or closer range, I don't want to get that mixed up. Um, and then it has Inaccurate 1 and Vicious 2. Now, the second weapon uh, has the personal scale item quality. This is something to remember. It means that the damage in uh, is going to be in personal scale, not uh, planetary scale. Uh, when using weapons with the planetary scale against other vehicles... Um, you apply the damage from the weapon plus each uncancelled success to the vehicle's hull trauma threshold. Now, you say, uh, you know, with the damage, of course, minus the armor rating, right? Yeah. Just like soak, Just like soak at personal scale. Exactly, exactly. Now, since the characters and vehicles occupy the same space now, uh, you know, we can quickly see that the buggy's weapon has this range of medium. And realistically, you know, we'll talk about, and I know we, t- we talked about ranges before, but let's talk about the difficulties very quickly. Now, we touched base on this in the last episode as well. Um, in Star Wars, there was a set difficulty of average, and that was for all range bands. Genesis changed that to be the same difficulty as all other combat. Again, rule number one, which is all combat works the same way. Uh, so short is going to be one purple, medium is two, long is three, extreme is four, and then this strategic range, which you can still fire at, um, but you can only fire it from um, vehicles, uh, is a difficulty of five purple dice, which is huge. Um, you know, because all vehicle weapons use the gunnery skill, and this is another important thing to remember, any vehicles which are in, are in the engaged range cannot use their weapons since on table uh what is it uh, 1.6-4 range modifiers which is in the core rule page 108 it clearly states that heavy weapons cannot be used in engaged range so that's something to really note it's all very well and good to get your your vehicles into engaged range when they're docking or or you know you need to swap people between vehicles or something like that but you're not going to be able to use your weapons that use gunnery against that other vehicle. Yep. As you can see, all the rules from personal scale combat still apply. So it makes the whole process easier, as I mentioned before, and it makes it consistent across the board, which is, I think, the design goal of what Genesis is in the first place. Absolutely. So, okay, in our example, the these punks and the choppers have mm-hmm. handheld weapons, specifically pipe rifles, yep. uh, damage 7, critical rating of 4, mm-hmm. the inferior and limited ammo 2 item qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, these are also personal scale weapons, so you'd apply the 10 to 1 rule we mentioned earlier and back yep. in episode 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in essence, they have to roll the equivalent of one point of whole trauma threshold, which is... Uh, uh, 10 points of personal skill damage, the 10 to 1 rule. Yep. So if Huli were to roll three successes with the weapon's damage of seven, 
that equals 10 points of damage. The downside for me is the buggy has no armor. So if Huli does roll three successes, I will be taking one point against the buggy's whole trauma threshold. <laughs> Over to you, Huli. Give it your best shot. Yeah, and don't forget, don't yep. forget my upgrade and my oh, defense. Yeah. Thank you very much. Very cool. Very cool. All right, let's give this a go. I hate rolling. <laughs> well, what's your di- what's your dice pool? What's working? Oh yeah, yeah, good call. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that dice roll because it's pretty good. Um, so you know, it's uh, basically it's a group of three minions uh, with a range of uh, heavy on their skill list. Uh, they've got an agility of three, so that's going to be one green and two yellow dice. And it's uh, the distance between the group and uh, Chris's buggy is short. So that's going to be one purple dice. However, he has, uh, you know, he does have a current defense of one. Plus, we also have the sand and, and dust, which we've already established is part of the scene, which is going to be another defense effectively of one. Um, and we've also got a weapon with inaccurate. So that's a total of three setback dice. Uh, excuse me. Yes. Um, my triumph. That oh, yes. purple is yes, that yes, purple yes. is now a red. Good point. Yes, and I did. I did remember that. <laughs> Just so that we're all clear. <laughs> um, that uh, yeah. So that's going to be two yellows, one green, one red, and three setback die. So uh, the roll that I've made, uh, Chris, you're going to be very very happy with. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty happy with it too, but in, in a weird sort of a way. So it was only one success. Um, and four advantages. Now, it's not great because although the attack is hit, it only does eight personal scale damage, which means that it doesn't penetrate the buggy's hull. Uh, you know, the challenge die was blank, by the way, so clearly maybe the dust is cleared. I'm not sure, <laughs> but we'll get to that. Um, so the, uh, the, the problem, though, is that there are four advantages, which would normally be enough for a critical hit, but I need to do some sort of damage for uh, for the critical to uh, to come into bear, and that's the same with personal scale combat as well. Is that uh, if you've hit, that's great, but you have to make sure that they get through the soak and they have to take at least one point of damage. The same applies to vehicles. If you don't get any damage through, you don't get to perform the crit, and so your advantages or triumph will need to be spent a little bit differently. So for this, I think I'm going to spend the four advantages to, you know, whip up the dust around you and uh, give your gunner two setback die instead. So where it looks like the dust isn't gone after all, I don't think. <laughs> I, hate, I hate sand. It's coarse, rough, and it gets everywhere. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, so... Before we go any further, Huli, can we talk about minions in vehicles for a second? Yeah. So um, with normal minions, each individual in a group has a wound threshold. And once that threshold is met, one NPC in the group is removed. You know, these wound thresholds, however, are normally low. They're somewhere between three and six. Vehicles, however, have much larger values for their whole trauma threshold. In fact, they range anywhere between four and ten and that's just for the smaller vehicles. So the secret here is that you don't treat vehicle minions any differently than you would normal minions. Now, this is something that isn't really covered in the rules. 
Um, so uh, our suggestion is you only apply the armour of a vehicle once, as you would normally for any uh, other minion groups, uh, and you treat the minion group as a single entity when rolling. And then you just keep a tally of the total combined damage of the vehicles in that group. And when the damage exceeds the whole trauma threshold of one vehicle, that one vehicle is destroyed. Now, in our example, we've uh, we've used the uh, the for our choppers. We're gonna uh, I've used the the motorcycle from the EPG um, because it's basically right in front of me. Well, it was only a page away, um, and um, it's whole trauma threshold of uh, of two. But by using the bikes in groups of three, we've given them an effective trauma whole trauma of six. Uh, which still really isn't much, and they'll probably be taken out pretty quickly. But this might be the aim of the encounter. And I, I, by design, just this is how I would do things. Uh, you know, it's still hard to hit with two yellows um, and a green, but as they drop off, their abilities are going to uh, their ability to hit is going to diminish fairly quickly. And that really kind of brings me to um, to my fifth vehicle combat tip which is vehicle combat tip number five, minion group vehicles should only exist in groups of between two and three. Yeah. But what about criticals against minions? Do they work the same? Look, this is, this is a good question, and it's one that comes up quite a lot. Uh, and as I said before, the rules on this, uh, they're pretty, when it comes to vehicles anyway, they're, they, they're pretty silent, but the way that I like to do it, and I think you've done it the same way for the, from the games that I've played in your games, Chris, is that they're basically still minions. Um, so keeping track of critical hits on minion groups, it's tedious because there can be a lot of them, um, and it's, uh, look, let's face it, it, it's a little bit unrealistic uh, because yes. which vehicle do you apply it to? Do you apply it to all of them or one of them? So instead, I treat a critical hit against a vehicle minion group as an insta-kill, as you would normally for any sort of normal personal scale combat. So, uh, yeah, very, very simple. And that kind of also brings me into my sixth vehicle combat tip, which is critical hits destroy one minion vehicle in a minion vehicle group. Very simple. Yes, and I, you're, you're spot on. I've been doing this since Star Wars, and it mm. works very well. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. let's continue with the encounter. So yeah. you fired and you missed, which means that it's now a PC turn, which means it's my gunner's turn since my mm-hmm. driver already went. Yeah. So now I am in short range to one of the minion groups, but long range to the other one, right? Yep, you are. Okay. Now, when you have multiple participants on the battlefield, it tends to get confusing for both players and GMs as they attempt to keep track of where everything is and, and how far things away f- are from each other, right? Right. But I'm guessing you have a solution. I do. And the rules are called zones. Now, this was an idea that was originally introduced to me by by a friend of the podcast, Ghost of Man, uh, on the FFG forums, who was also known as Drew Hamilton. Uh, He showed me how to run Starship Combat in the Star Wars RPG by Fantasy Flight Games using a very similar system to what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, And at that time, he showed me over Roll20, and he showed me hexes and how ships can move between them to, to represent range bands. I, I then went out and uh, made uh, hexagonal grids from, from plyboard. 
to help run my games and, and really visualize where things were on the battlefield. Now, we're dependent to all of this, and years later, some five years later, I think it was, uh, when I was with the Diceball podcast, GM Huzz and Flano came to me with the idea of zones, which was was based somewhat on the rules of Medivius's uh, Infinity RPG and their Star Trek RPG. Uh, normally, uh, like the two systems use two D twenty, so um, it, it's and it seems to be integrated in all of their their two D twenty systems. Now, there's similar rules um, uh, to zones and. Other rules also existed out there, which were things like the fate, and there were a few others as well. Also, the, uh, the another one I can recommend, uh, ICRPG, the Index Card RPG, mm. um, which is a fantastic little download you can get from DriveThruRPG. Yeah. Uh, great little system, and it uses index cards to represent zones. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and and uh, you use a banana. Uh, if, if zones are separated <laughs> by the width of a banana, it's a full distance zone apart there. wow yeah. there you go yep interesting <laughs> that's cool um but uh, yeah and uh you know i got heavily involved with uh, the testing and development and later posted those rules uh about zones onto the dice pool podcast fan facebook page um and they're still available if anybody wants to go looking for them um, and, uh, you know, th- since doing a little bit of research on this, there's also been uh, other systems like um, Bill Tadif's uh, and uh, Christopher Ruthenbach, uh, who have uh, developed systems of their own using concentric circles, you know, coming from the center of, of a vehicle. And it's a method that can be used really well on platforms such as uh, Roll20. So basically, this is not an original idea by any stretch. And you can also see parts of that in the original uh, Star Wars D20 um, as well. Uh, so uh, there was a, a page in there that has these concentric circles with uh, with a, a ship in the middle of them. So it, it has existed for a while. And uh, it's also really useful for those people like myself who have difficulty visualizing theater of the mind combat. So now you know the history of zones. Now the idea behind them is that uh, zones can represent range bands. Now I must admit that I was a little bit reluctant to do this on the podcast because it's very much a visual thing. Now, for those people that have problems visualizing this verbally, we will be making the abridged version of what we'll be talking about available in our show notes uh, that you can download from our website. Excellent. Now, Chris, apart from being a great way to teach new players about how to play the combat side of Genesis, zones, in my opinion, are also a great way to see where everything is within a combat encounter and to help participants at a table visualize combat. So they're, they've, uh, they're using a more tactile and a, and a visual medium. Uh, and it also means that you're not arguing about where certain things are. It's, you know, it's in black and white right in front of you. Um, and as a bonus, it also works really well in Genesis. So what are we talking about? Maps here? Well, yes and no. Um, it's, is there a physical representation of an area of a combat encounter? Yes, there is. Um, is it an actual map? No, although you could place these zones over the top of an existing map, such as from Christopher West's um, Maps of Mastery, um, or any of the stuff that uh, you can buy from Paizo. 
uh, that you just lay over the, the top of that or you, you can cut it out and I'll explain more about that later. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to combat or even doing stuff online where we're doing it in a COVID world where we're doing more of that sort of stuff online, that, um, you know, the, the positioning of where characters are in an encounter is important, um, especially when you're, you know, you're working out the effectiveness of specific talents where uh, other characters need to be in a certain radius um, and, uh, you know, different things like that. Um, or even when needing uh, the distance the target is away to calculate the difficulty of a ranged weapon, um, and moving from one place to the next. You want to be able to do it very, very quickly rather than having a two-minute discussion as where was I last round. Um, you know, that, that can sometimes be up to the players to be able to be tracking this, and it actually says that in the rules that it's up to the players to work out where they are in relation to everything else. So elaborate on that. What do you, what do you mean by that? Because th- this this can get a little complicated. Yeah, so... I know we mentioned this before, but looking at the rules for ranges on page 105 and 106 of the core rules, we can see that it costs a single maneuver to move from short range to engage range, uh, a single maneuver to move from short range to anywhere else within short range, and a single maneuver to move from short range to medium range. It then goes on to say that it takes two maneuvers to move from medium range to long range, two maneuvers to move from long range to extreme. And then it additionally talks about uh, the new range band of strategic in that it costs two maneuvers to move from extreme range to strategic. And this is kind of an unusual concept to wrap your brain around because ranges are abstract. But, mm. you know, if, if, I'm at, if, I'm at, if I'm at long range from something and I'm, I, I, I move one range band to medium range, mm. I, I'm now not necessarily at medium range from it. I'm still potentially at long range unless I've taken a couple maneuvers, two additional maneuvers to bridge that gap. Mm. Okay. Mm. So, I mean, it, 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 this is why this system of zones can be helpful, but what, why, why is this so important? I mean, because I mean, this is a big hurdle. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Genesis and Star Wars systems have, uh, have had this question of, of how many maneuvers it takes to go from one range band to the next. And it really monopolizes the the time at the table because then people are sort of like having to book dive and whatever else. Um, and especially when you've got this thing called relative movement, uh, which, um, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Right, right. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the more confusing parts with the system. Now, many people think that relative distances, when they start talking about this in Genesis, are measured from where a character currently is, not where they were at the start of their movement, basically. So, in fact, the idea of relative positioning can create confusion by itself. So, for example, according to the rules, if you take two maneuvers, and I think you just mentioned this very quickly, Chris, is that it takes two maneuvers and a round, you're still at medium range from your previous position. Right. <laughs> When we look at a, at a definition of, of, of what range is, according to the dictionary, anyway, that I looked up before the show, it's an area of variation between an upper and a lower limits on scale. Now, in this case, the scale is distance, and each variable is going to be the range bands. So, um, or it's going to be an area of space between the two points when short range becomes medium range. So, with that in mind, 
the rules state that it takes one maneuver to move from short range to medium range, and then another two maneuvers to move from medium range to long range. So that's a total of three maneuvers. Now, since the characters only talk two maneuvers, they are not in short range. They are not in long range because they haven't taken enough. In fact, they're, they're one maneuver away, but instead they're still at medium range. On the outer edge of medium range, but they're still at medium range. So logically, medium range is two personal scale maneuvers in width and is a single maneuver in the equivalent of zone. I see. Now, this same logic then applies to long, extreme, strategic range in that each of these zones, according to the rules, are a further two zones, although strategic is really anything beyond extreme. Okay, I think I get it. Now, just to confuse the matter a little, vehicles are going to be a little bit different again. But that's only because their movement is calculated in factors of range bands. It's not calculated in factors of maneuvers. As we've been saying all the way through this episode, Genesis creates the space for characters and vehicles to more easily occupy the same space. And so for the zone rules, we needed to make this work together seamlessly. Tell me more. All right, so zones are a very simple concept that most people have likely been using the entire time that they've been playing with the narrative dice system, especially if they used anything from miniatures to marks on a whiteboard or even just a piece of paper and a pen. For me, I use these plastic hex boards, which are around about six inches in, uh, in width, and I'll put up some pictures of those on our Facebook page uh, after the show. Um, now, you don't need to go to that extent, though. Instead, you can use cut-out foam board, or you can plot out a grid on a sheet of paper, um, or you can even use hexagonal-shaped playing cards from an online supplier. Uh, and if people are looking for that link, I'll uh, send that to you as well, or put it up on uh, in the show notes. Uh, so you can also use filing cards, as Chris mentioned before. There's, a file, there's an entire system uh, dedicated around filing cards, um, or if you have a map, you can break down the area with or different areas on the map with lines. And this is something that Star Trek Adventures RPG from Modiphius does in their rules. Um, for this discussion, though, I'll be describing them as either hexes or zones, just so that we can keep the language consistent. Now, once you've obtained those, you lie them flat on your gaming table. Now, as I said, I'll use hexes because they basically interconnect uh, and they ensure that there's no questions at the table about diagonal movements, which you do with, with Pathfinder and any sort of thing that you use as a, uh, a square grid. <laughs> right. Nor any questions about, um, you know, what area connects to where. Okay. So with what you said before, zones represent the location of the encounter and that one or more zones are going to equal a range band. Mm. Okay. Depending obviously on, on what range band it is. Yep. You said, we said one for short range based mm. on the rules, another two zones for medium range, mm. another two zones for long and the last two zones for extreme. Mm. Um, and then of course you said anything beyond that is obviously strategic range. Am I, am I, am I right? Yep. That's right. That? Abs- okay. Absolutely. Uh, but another way to describe it, um, as I'll sort of try to do it in a verbal sense uh, that um, if you take eight pieces of, of paper or eight hex pieces um, and, uh, you know, count them out uh, one to eight from left to right. Okay. Well, right. I've, I've got eight hex pieces in front of me and I've labeled them one to eight. Awesome. So 
uh, if you take the first hex, you can label that as one, um, and that's going to be our starting point. So zone one is basically short range, and everything within that zone is considered short range from everything else in the same zone. So if there was a computer terminal, a door, or a, you know, like a computer server or something like that in that zone, each of those items would be short range from each other. Got it. Now, zone two and three are going to be medium range. Zone four and five are long, zone six and seven extreme, and then eight and anything beyond that is going to be strategic range. Does the same thing apply to range bands when you're calculating distances from shooter to target, for example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. And uh, the simple process is if it's in the same zone as the attacker, it's short range, so one purple difficulty. Um, you know, one to two zones away from the attacker, it's going to be medium. Three to four zones away, long. Five to six, extreme. And then seven or more is going to be strategic with the appropriate difficulty dice applied. So, yes, it's calculated the same way as you would movement, mainly because of vehicle combat tip number one, which was all combat works the same way. The same way, yeah, right, exactly. Right. Mm. Okay, awesome. So, okay, coolly, with that load of information under our belt, <laughs> right? Um, as, as we dive into this optional rule mechanic, yeah. mm-hmm. let's talk about vehicles. Yeah. So, everything that we've talked about thus far when we're talking about maneuvers and whatever else are going to be at character scale. And vehicles are not. They are at planetary scale. Right. But since we're going to be displaying things in range bands, we don't need to change anything except to add a simple rule which we've created in a fantastic little table, um, which you know I'll, I'll get onto in a tick. Now, I mentioned this before, but when vehicles move, we count their movement in range bands, not maneuvers. Well, not unless we're talking about the reposition mover, but we'll, we'll get into that later. So in a nutshell, due to forced movement, a vehicle moves a number of range bands depending on its current speed. Now this forced movement occurs at the start or at the end of the round and can be a distance of between zero to four range bands, depending on the speed. So a vehicle traveling at the fastest speed possible of five from a specific zone, a vehicle must move from short to strategic range. Now that's insane. That's absolutely insane. (laughs) I mean, assuming... You know, you, you, well, it, relative to a target standing still, yeah, yes. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So by that logic, I just mentioned, and from what we discussed before about the correlation between range bands and zones, apart from short range, each range band equals two zones. And therefore, each point of force movement equals two zones. Now, you mentioned short range. How does that change things? You know, because what, to, to, go from, to go from short range to medium range, as we established earlier, is just one zone. Mm. As a result, we wanted to give the option to move one less than the two zones required. So right. we therefore created our table of zone forced movement, which mm-hmm. you guys can see in the, the document um, on our site, mm-hmm. which mirrors that of the table, um, which is actually the, that table was now modified by the errata that actually came out at the end of last year yeah. um, on page 221 of the core rules. Uh, that's table 3.2-14, vehicle speeds in structured encounters. Yeah. And what that, what, what that basically says is, Speed zero, no movement. Mm. Speed one, your force movement is is one to two zones. Mm. Speed two, three to four zones. Mm. Speed three or four, five to six zones. And speed five or higher is going to be seven to eight zones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to to give that as an example, um, let's use the buggy that you're using in the encounter thus far. So yes, yes. At the start of combat, it's got a speed of two, right? 
And mm-hmm. if we look at the zone force movement table, the vehicle must move three to four zones, which is the equivalent of two range bands from short range to long range. So that means if we go back to our zone range template, um, the vehicle moves from zone one to either zone four or five, since that's still within that long range, given the fact that it's, it's two zones. Um, so this gives drivers and, and pilots a little bit more flexibility, um, and it still operates within the rules as written. Okay, well, that seems enough. What about engage range, though? Look, we, we, well, to talk about engage range, we have to understand that it really is a special type of range band, and, and they describe it that way in the core rules. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, engage range acts more of a condition that is applied to a target than an actual range band. Yes, you have to move to it, so that's sort of why they're saying that um, it's a range band, um, or you have to spend a manoeuvre, sorry. So, you know, the, the zone rules don't change that concept at all. And, uh, you know, all the character need to do is state that they are going to spend a manoeuvre to move into engage range. Now, this could be uh, represented with uh, moving their character miniature or a token or, you know, just moving their mark on and rubbing it out and moving it to the next one, um, you know, to adjacent to the target that they're going to become in range, engaged uh, range with. Now, that's personal scale, though. Vehicles don't have the same flexibility that characters do, and to do the same thing, they need to take the reposition pilot-only manoeuvre. Now, the reposition pilot-only manoeuvre allows a vehicle to move up to one range band from their current position. Now, it can occur before force movement or after force movement. Now, according to Sam, um, that's Sam Gregor Stewart, just to name drop, um, (laughs) using the reposition manoeuvre includes moving from short range to engaged, and that totally makes sense, given the description of the manoeuvre on page 227 of the core rules, um, which it basically says that it, you know, it, it's slight movement, it's small adjustments that you're making to a vehicle on the fly. Sam did go a little bit further and says that you can also use one of your range bands uh, that you move during force movement to move into engage range. Personally, I don't subscribe to that. Um, and, uh, as far as the, the zone rules go, um, I don't allow that. So uh, the only way to get into engaged range, and this isn't really all that important with vehicles, unless you're going to be docking or unless perhaps that you're using some sort of a mech. So whoever's out there going to be designing mech rules, um, that's something that, that you, uh, you know, need to look at. Or if you're, I don't know, uh, age of myth and using yes. triremes with ram with rams yes. on them. That is very true too. Um, But in that sort of a case, you're going to have a collision. Uh, There's no two ways about that. Well, that's the the point. You're you're, kind of going against the grain here, (laughs) Huli. Yeah, it's not something I'm massively proud of, but, um, you know, to me, it just makes a lot more sense. Um, And also, much like personal combat, where a character must use a maneuver to disengage from an enemy, a vehicle must use the reposition maneuver to leave engaged range or disengage, if you prefer, from a hostile enemy vessel. Um, The interesting thing, though, is that if a vessel isn't hostile in the same way that a character can leave from engaged range 
from a hostile uh, character without needing to spend a manoeuvre to disengage, so too can a vehicle do exactly the same thing. Keeping that parity, rule number one. Exactly. So what happens with weapons, though? I mean, like, because I'm, I'm looking, like, the rules on page 108 of the core book, um, I'm looking at table uh, 1.6-4, range modifiers. Yep. They basically say that if you're using a heavy ranged weapon, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's Star Wars stated specifically that it was a weapon using the gunnery skill, but uh, here it's a heavy range weapon. Yep. That when you're when you're doing this at engaged, you can't make combat checks. You cannot make combat checks. Yeah. So does that mean that if a vehicle were at engaged range with another object, person, or other vehicle, it couldn't use its weapons against them? Correct, unless the weapon attached to the vehicle is listed with the item quality of personal scale. Uh, and that's normally going to be using either range skills instead of gunnery. Uh, so, you know, basically it should be a good indicator that a vehicle moving into engage range, is it's not a great move. Unless, as I said before, it's either docking or, as you said, Chris, uh, you know, ramming another vehicle. Now, something to consider, though, is that if you do the reposition maneuver into engaged range, you're still moving at whatever speed you were before you took that maneuver. So just to make sure, you need to make sure your vehicle has enough system strain to do it to power down the engines. Otherwise, that docking maneuver has just become a massive collision. Right, and you're gonna need to have the you know the decelerate pilot only maneuver and the extra pilot only maneuver that you'll be doing. So um, you know since you have to perform the reposition, so you're gonna be copying a lot of strain. So um, you know, and in some circumstances, GMs could also ask for a check, uh, especially a docking, as a dangerous driving check at best. So uh, you know, there's there's that too. Well, no. and also, I mean, keep ask you, man. I mean, this is we're talking in an encounter. I would, hmm. as a GM, we would never enforce this oh, kind of, of check not. or anything like that if you're in a narrative situation needing to dock, hmm. right? Exactly. But I mean, if yeah. you if you look at the likes of um, Mandalorian, um, spoilers in case anybody hasn't seen it, if uh, where they had to jump out of hyperspace and very quickly take a certain maneuver to dock with the vessel uh, that they were raiding. That would have been a dangerous driving maneuver, and yes, it's outside of uh, of standard combat. That situation could have turned into a combat encounter, um, mm. but uh, that was definitely sort of set up to be more of a, you know, perhaps even a skill challenge if we wanted to go down that path. But yeah. um, look, finally, as a, as a last point regarding the reposition, is that you can move an extra range band as well. Uh, that's according to the rules, or even more from uh, from some point within short range to another. What, an extra range band? Technically, yes. Um, although for the zone rules, I adjusted it to mean that they can only move one additional zone instead of an entire range band. And the main reason being that moving an entire range band seemed too much um, and moved away from the description of shift within the environment in small ways, as the uh, uh, the reposition manoeuvre describes. Technically speaking, it does mean that you can get into another range band, um, but you're only going to be on the edge of that range band uh, when it comes to looking at where your zone placement is. Okay. So now that we know how to move vehicles around using these you know, optional zone house rules... Mm. What about difficult terrain? How does difficult terrain work with zones? 
Look, it really depends on what sort of hazard or environmental effects that make the terrain difficult, in inverted commas. Uh, A zone with rocky terrain, for example, is going to be difficult for a wheeled vehicle, but not necessarily for a flying or a tracked vehicle. Uh, These latter types of vehicles have special rules which account for this, especially if we're looking at the EPG, the tank that has been uh, put in there. It does have tracked, and that allows you to ignore difficult terrain. So otherwise, when a vehicle moves into a zone with a difficult terrain, they must make a dangerous driving check. Uh, And don't forget those setback dice depending on the density of the terrain found on the chart on page 227, which is uh, the navigational hazard setback dice chart. And look, the upgrades based on the current speed of the vehicle. Don't forget those either when it hits that difficult terrain. For personal scale, though, it requires two moves to move through a zone which contains difficult terrain. Yeah, and and that's that's a huge that's a huge differentiator between personal and planetary scale because again, planetary scale movement is in bands, in personal scale movement is in maneuvers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it's kind of it's kind of odd there. And when you've got that force movement, it's like yeah, difficult terrain doesn't mean you're going to slow down. Mm-hmm. It just means that you've got to deal with difficult terrain. It's going to take checks in order to do that. Exactly. So now, one thing though that I will touch base on very quickly is that uh, when it comes to if you've got one part terrain on in a zone and then a blank zone and then you've got another zone with terrain, the difficulty to move through multiple zone areas with differing terrain is is the highest difficulty of the area being travelled through plus one setback for each additional zone area move through. Now, that's not zones. That's zone areas. So if you've got an area with one sort of type of terrain and then it goes into another one with a different type of terrain, that's what we're talking about. So if, for example, you were in a buggy with a silhouette of two and a speed of three and you want to move through an area with rocky covered hills and that would be worth uh, two setback die and then, you know, rocket down the side of a cliff face for three setback die, your difficulty is going to be average with one purple die and one red die and four setback die as you take the three from the hardest terrain and then add one. And for those who were a little bit lost with that, don't forget the difficulty for dangerous driving is the silhouette of the vehicle and then upgrade the difficulty depending on the speed of the vehicle from table 3.2-14, vehicle speeds in structured encounters. So that, uh, and that you could continue that movement straight through. So then you would, rather than making one check and then another check and then another check. Uh, because you don't want to be making multiple checks for the same movement. That would just waste everyone's time. Okay, very good. Okay, well, I am beyond excited to read that. Um, I, 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 Again, I play Bazones at the table. I think it's a really, really cool system. But um, it, it is, as you say, Huli, very hard to explain in an auditory fashion. <laughs> yes. Um, I was a bit and we took one, to And try. we took one <laughs> hell of a tangent talking about it. So... I'd like to get back into the action if we could. I think my gunner was about to fire. Yep, absolutely. Go for it. Okay, so two targets, two minion groups, one at short range, one at long range. Um, I'm going to attack, obviously, the closest target, which is at short range, because the difficulty there is one purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be firing the scrap shooter cannon, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is also inaccurate, giving me one setback. <laughs> um, now, from what your God, it what what did you roll four advantage before? Yep, four advantages. Yep, and that was um, uh, that was two setback. <laughs> okay, for a total of three. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so my my gunner, she has three agility and two gunnery. Um, and I think she's going to double aim, take some personal strain and double aim. I need yep. some uh, I need some boost die to counteract those setback dice. <laughs> so yeah, man, I'm looking at a green, two yellows, a purple, three black, and two blues. Sounds good. Roll them bones. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, setbacks didn't do much for me at all. Um, okay, that is one uncancelled success mm-hmm. and four advantage. Right. <laughs> I think I know um, where this is going. A good chunk of that. Uh, uh, wow. Uh, two, two of the advantage came from the no, god, three advantage came from the boosts. Yep. Um, so the gunner got a very clear shot through the dust, um, and two of the setbacks were blank. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> okay. <It's not. laughs> I know exactly what the advantage are going towards, uh, but the damage is one plus the single success, yep. giving a total of two whole trauma uh, threshold damage. Um, I believe, based on what you said earlier, that's enough to take out one of the minions? Yep. And then for advantage, I will spend two critical hit, uh, which should take out another one, right? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So basically what's going to happen in this scenario is that, you know, the gunner fires off a volley into the dust um, and uh, the volley strikes true as uh, you and she both hear a scream followed by a dull orange glow within the dust cloud and then it's a company explosion (laughs) because you've got to make stuff blow up. Um, so, so that group's now down to one member. So, uh, so it was a group of three. It's now down to one. Um, thanks for that. Uh, so to finish off the round, we still have the one minion group left. Um, so they'll move into short range, uh, as the other ones did. And, um, uh, with a better idea of your positioning now, uh, they'll take a shot. Now this time. Uh, they're going to get to aim to get another boost die. So it'll be two yellows, one green, one boost, one purple, and one setback. So let's give this a go. (laughs) Holy crap! (laughs) I love blanks. Um, So that's going to be a blank on the difficulty. And a blank on the setback. So what about that? So sorry about that. Uh, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Uh, three successes, one of which is a triumph, and four advantages. God, we're rolling advantages like a freaking. I, <laughs> I know, right? Um, so that means with three successes that I've managed to get to to ten damage, meaning one hull trauma that I'm going to cause. Um, and well, look, just because I can, the, the criticals, uh, the advantage is going to be a critical, I think. Um, yeah. uh, so, but as far as now I could go and spend the, the triumph as well to give me a plus 10 on top of that, but I think I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Okay. Okay. So for first things first, that, let me really know that. So one point of whole trauma and a critical yep. hit. So tell, tell us about that. You scored, okay. you scored a critical hit. What does that mean yeah. in vehicle combat? All right. So what that means is that you refer to the critical hit table on page 230 of the core rules. Uh, and for that, I roll a 1d100 or a percentile dice, if you prefer. 
Um, this is the same as critical injuries, but specifically for vehicles. Now, you roll this on the table and apply the results. It's as simple as that. Um, if the vehicle has uh, attained any previous criticals, that they get a plus 10 for each additional critical that occurs. Okay. Um, so uh, the, the other thing as well as that uh, to note is that um, the effects that apply to the result of the critical injuries, such as the vicious quality, um, do not apply to critical hits um, the same way that they do for critical injuries. Okay. Uh, and the opposite is also true. Huh, All right. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let me get the percentile. Low, low. <laughs> I hex you. <laughs> Let's try this. Right. That's pretty low. 33. Uh, so um, that's shrapnel spray. Oh, ouch. I'm just looking at that. Um, both the pilot and gunner need to make hard resilience or vigilance checks or they suffer one wound plus one for each uncancelled failed symbol. Now, that's something unusual. We don't actually see that very often when they start talking about failed symbols. That's nasty. This is not this is not cool, man. <laughs> Sorry okay, about that. all right. Let me let me get some dice pulls right. What about the triumph? All right. So uh, for that, um, I think that uh, when you saw them coming, you quickly turned left when you probably should have turned right, uh, and found yourself precariously driving along the edge of a canyon cliff face, um, or cliff edge. Sorry. Uh, so you'll be needing to take a dangerous driving action in the next turn. Love but, it. <laughs> but first, the resilience or the vigilance check. So uh, let's say your character and the gunner have, what, one in both? Sound good to you? Yeah, that's that works. That works. Okay. All right. All right. So. Um, and, and what are we saying? Twos in brawn and will, I think? Yep. Yep. So it's going to be right. one green and one yellow. One green, one yellow. And you said that was a three purple difficulty? That's correct. Hey, dink. All right. <laughs> um. All right, uh, let's start from my character, the driver. Uh, that's a total wash uh, with a mix of advantage um, and threat washing out. Cool. Um, so, well, it's a failure, but that's 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 one wound for me. Yep. Um, and for my gunner, oh dear, so much threat. <laughs> There's so much threat. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, she succeeded. Um, nice. <laughs> two successes and five threats. Really? <laughs> Jeez. So um, what's that going to look like? Well, you tell me, man. It's threat. Oh, yeah, good, good goal. If I, that, if that's I my job. You, <laughs> I mean, I mean, five, five threat. That's a. I mean, if I were you, that would be a critical injury. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the other part of uh, at the end of that uh, the. Uh, uh, the the critical uh, the critical hit is that um, yeah three threat can basically be spent on a on a critical injury oh oh really oh okay I missed that <laughs> okay so only three of those gets me a crit right wow okay what do you want to do with the other two strain oh look strange probably the easiest <laughs> in this scenario yes all right 
Um, I've got my percentile dice. Do you have the critical injury table handy? I do indeed in front of me. Yes. All right. That is a 58. (laughs) 58. So consulting the critical injury table um, here on my Genesis GM screen, that's an agonizing wound. Uh, So the target increases the difficulty of all brawn and agility checks by one. Until this critical injury is healed. Ouch. This, I'm done. I, table table flip. I'm done. This wasn't supposed right. to go this way. Okay, 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 okay. All right, so that's the end of the round, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right, so new round. I got a PC going up, right? Right, right. Um, now, I, I, as, as part of my turn, my character does need to take a dangerous driving action, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And the gunner is increasing the difficulty of her checks to hit once. Yep. Okay. But that's actually where we're going to hold it. Otherwise, we could go on for hours. <laughs> uh, look, uh, we still have a lot to discuss in our series on vehicles and vehicle combat, and we'll use this example to con- continue our discussion later on. I can't wait. <laughs> so, look, we'll be also discussing uh, large ship combat, and yes, I know this episode was supposed to be dedicated to that, uh, but we felt that we really needed to look at how vehicle combat worked first, So you could get a feel for the system. Uh, We still need to discuss collisions, force collisions, in other words, ramming attacks, uh, which is something that um, came in with the EPG, Uh, conducting boarding actions, of course, vehicle design and modification, chases, and how to best represent vehicle encounters in your foundry product. So much to look forward to. It's not funny. (laughs) that's right in the meantime if you guys have questions about what we've discussed please post it up on our facebook page and we will get to answering that for you um so before we leave this topic should we quickly summarize our vehicle combat tips yep the vehicle combat tip number one is personal and vehicle combat all work the same way vehicle combat tip number two start vehicle combat at a speed of two or less depending of course on the max speed of the vehicle And vehicle combat tip number three, start vehicle combat at extreme or strategic range unless you're in a chase, which you should start at medium or long range. Vehicle combat tip number four, have stuff get in the way. Mm. Uh, Vehicle tip number five is men in group vehicles should only exist in groups of between two to three minions. And our last vehicle combat tip, number six, critical hits should destroy one minion vehicle in a minion vehicle group. Yeah. Ah, very excited to continue this discussion. Indeed. But Huli, um, I unfortunately have somewhere I've got to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to take my leave, but I'll be back in a bit. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, I think I'll probably need another co-host then. Maybe I'll get Sam Gregg or Stewart to come onto the show and join me as we interview a special guest about their fun and unique setting, which should be familiar to you all. And it's available on the Foundry right now. How about it, Sam? Hey, that sounds great to me. (laughs) Hey, Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Uh, I look forward to being in the uh, host chair this time. (laughs) It's going to be interesting. Um, So, uh, you know, it's an absolute pleasure to have you, as always, So now that I've got my two hosts again, uh, I think it's time for Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. 
Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. The show's Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. That's so weird to have somebody else saying that. Um, <laughs> now, tonight's <laughs> guest is a strange one, um, and a voice that haunts my dream-addled nightmares of podcast horror. He's not only the co-host of both The Forge and The Order 66 podcast, but is the creator of one of the more unique settings for Genesis available on the Foundry right now, and that's Familiar. And who would this author be? That's right, it's our very own GM Chris. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks. It's good to be back. (laughs) Welcome on our show, Chris. (laughs) Dude, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. And if you want to take this gig over over from me, go ahead. I'll guest whenever you want. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Our plan worked. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so Chris, people have been listening to you now across three different podcasts. Uh, including the Order 66 podcast under the Star Wars Saga Edition, then under FFG Star Wars RPG, and now we've, you're on the Forge as well. And that's across 12 years of podcasting. And I worked it out that that's a total of 325 episodes, most of which are anywhere between two and three hours. That's a lot of podcasting, dude. <laughs> and that's not including guest spots that you've had on other podcasts. So perhaps you'd like to tell us a little about something that we don't already know. Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> about you, your, your gaming career, and why you clearly love podcasting. Oh man. Um, okay. Uh, well, I love podcasting because I'm I'm mildly narcissistic and love to hear myself talk. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I listen to the podcast, you know, under the covers with my headphones on, you know, and, and, a, and a bottle of Jurgens. Um, uh, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I, I, in truth, I, I, I love podcasting. Um, I love, I love talking about games. That's really where it comes from. Um, um, I, I didn't even know what a podcast was 12 years ago. That's not really true. I understood it, but I didn't really listen to any podcasts 12 years ago. Mm. Um, and it was actually GM Dave, uh, my good friend and godfather to my child, um, who said, you know, he, he was into podcasting and said, you know, we were, we were gamers. He's like, we should do a gaming podcast. And, um, you know, we, we picked a system we loved and we happened to catch the crest of the wave at the right time. Mm. Um, and, uh, the the rest is history. But yeah, I've been I've been a gamer since you know junior high school, man. Um, uh, my um, my first ever gaming exposure to gaming was actually in Boy Scouts. Believe it or not, wow. Um, I uh, I was I, I had just become a Boy Scout. Uh, it was my first ever Boy Scout camping trip. I was a Cub Scout, and I had become a Boy Scout. And we were driving to this campsite, and I was in the in a van with like eight other guys that I didn't know. And I was, you know, a, a big nerd and and very sheepish. And um, I literally sat in the back of the van uh, reading this dog-eared copy of The Hobbit that, that you know, I'd, I'd read. That was like my seventh or eighth time reading The Hobbit. Mm. And um, 
uh, you know, I was trying, you know how it was, and I'm trying to hide the cover, you know, so nobody knows what I'm reading. Yeah. And this this older, and I must have been like 12. And this this older kid, he must have been like 14, maybe 15. He looks over at me and he goes, "Hey, what are you reading?" And like I had this moment, I can still remember. You know, when you're a child and you have these strong memories, this, these moments of shame and derision that wash <laughs> over you, and you, this yep. sticks with you. Yep. Oh yes. And I, I prepared myself, you know, mentally to get shoved into a locker, basically. And mm. I, I showed him, and the look on his face just wasn't what I was expecting. And he looked at me, he goes, cool. And that night, he and five other guys dragged me into this tent, and mm. they taught me how to play uh, second edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Wow. Um, and we played all night until four in the morning. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. That's and an that awesome was my, story. That, yeah, it was, it was it was great. I, I rolled up a paladin, a human paladin. His name was Sir Fensible the Brash, <laughs> and he, he died that night from a kobold spear thrust to the back just before the party got wiped by a beholder. Um, wow! And I, I was I was hooked, man. And it's been it's been kind of full on addiction for me ever since. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. My uh, my Boy Scouts career only uh, taught um, taught me how to play Magic: The Gathering, so I think you uh, you got the better end of that deal, <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the cheaper one apparently. Uh. <laughs> so here's a, a question we ask each of our guests, well, each of uh, Huli's guests who come onto the show: What style of game, game setting, or theme do you like to get on the table when you play, especially when you're talking about Genesis? Oh man. Okay, so my my first love is is um my first love is is Lord of the Rings, okay? And so I I'm a huge fantasy junkie, but honestly, it kind of starts and ends with Star Wars for me. I mean, it's my favorite setting in the history of any setting that's ever setting. <laughs> uh, um but to be truth, I, I wish I can give you a more definitive answer. I'm people who know me know that I'm very much a neophile when it comes to RPGs as well. I I enjoy a lot of one-shots, I enjoy simple RPGs. And my flavors and tastes will change radically. And you'll often see me running one shots of random things. Mm. Um, I, I love horror. I love space opera. Um, I love weird West. Um, I'm also a huge, 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 huge fan of pulp. Right. Mm. Very good. So that's, 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 your, awesome. that's your preference when it comes to Genesis is that, that pulpy sort of action hero type thing. Yes, but applying it to every other setting I can possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, pulp is one of those uh, one of those tones that uh, works pretty well in a lot of things. Yeah. So. yeah. All right, Chris, we've got to know you a little bit more. So let's talk about this wonderful setting of yours, which you know I've had the pleasure of playing twice now: once in person, once online. Um, though once in person was with um, our uh, new host. Uh, which was absolutely fantastic. So, tell us about Familiar by giving us the you know the elevator pitch. Tell us about this supplement. How would you describe it to someone who was looking to purchase it for the first time? Uh, if you want to play something off the wall with a system you love and have an experience that you haven't probably ever had at the table for, this is the setting for you. Right. Familiar is a setting about being an animal. And um, I'm not talking about a, a, a dire bear or a, a lion or anything even remotely threatening. I'm talking about literally playing a player character who is a cute, furry, woodland creature who has been uplifted into the service of a human familiar, of, of a human mage. And they, they are familiars. That's the point of the setting. Right. Um, however, as, as the setting has been written and, and a lot of the GM advice in the book, which we can talk about, 
humans are, are afterthoughts in an ironic twist to the way most familiars are normally treated. Humans are NPCs who really don't have any major activity in the story, or at least they shouldn't. And the other key feature that makes familiar very different from other settings is that you are intentionally playing incredibly underpowered characters, at least in comparison to, you know, human adventurers that are out there in this fantasy world. And that creates a lot of humor. It creates a lot of fun. And the players really have to rely on their wits more so than anything else. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a odd setting. I'd say one of the most unique settings on the foundry um, when you look at it, but it is also incredibly fascinating. Um, I, I really love it. And honestly, uh, I, yeah, I was honestly surprised to uh, have uh, fallen into it so much and enjoyed it so much. What drew you to such an unusual concept? Where did this come from? I, it, it came from many years of playing Dungeons and Dragons, quite frankly where familiars are treated as equipment. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're, they're the afterthoughts. They're, you know, no one thinks about them. They're just, they're just there. Oh, oh, I get, I get a plus two from my familiar being near me. You know, th- and, and I, I became fascinated with the idea of taking that trope and turning it on its head. And what if, you know, and, and this, maybe this is why I love Star Wars so much too. You know, what, what if the little guy is the one where the strength lies, right? What, what if it's the little guys who make the difference and, and are really making things happen when the big guys don't even realize what's going on. Mm. And, and that was really the genesis for it all. Uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just a quick side question. How, uh, how well do you feel now that you've had a chance to get this on the table? How well do you feel players respond to the idea of playing very underpowered characters um, compared to most Genesis fair? <laughs> um so i've had to get i've had the chance to get this on the table both physically and virtually a lot and there's two different types of players there's players that they don't care because they get to play an animal <laughs> um and and they just squee and that's that's enough for them they, they don't even care the other player type i tend to get some raised eyebrows and they're like really they, they look at their character sheets and they're like i've got a i've got two dice in all my pools are you kidding me <laughs> um you know or oh 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 wait Three of my pools have three dice in them. Oh, <laughs> and you, you tend to get the kind of eyebrow raise. But after you get really halfway through a, fir- a single encounter, and if you're if you're GMing it properly, using the advice in the setting as well, um, then they, that all sense seems to melt away. And those players that may have had their raised eyebrows to begin with tend to start to realize the fun of being able to rely on their player creativity to solve these problems instead of necessarily what their characters can or can't do. Right. Very good. Role-playing, not role-playing, huh? <laughs> yeah, oddly enough. <laughs> now, Chris, this setting is roughly about 50 pages long, and it includes all we'd come to expect from a setting. Uh, you know, it's got some new species um, and archetypes. It's got careers, talents. It's got gear and adversaries and a whole heap of other stuff. But additionally, it provides a GM focus section on on actually running the setting, which I think it really needs. What can you tell us about the development of Familiar and and how you've sort of decided on what parts you wanted where in in the in the book itself? Sure, sure. Well, the honestly, it it started to begin with with the archetypes. 
Um, that's really where I started everything, because when you're talking about this kind of concept, you have to make sure those archetypes, those species, more than anything else, really drive what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to drive the point home in terms of their capabilities or incapabilities, their available XP, everything else. Mm-hmm. That's what really sets the tone. I think I spent, of of the development of it, I probably spent 40 per, 30 to 40% of the total development time refining, re-refining, and re-refining the archetypes. Wow. That was that was really where, where the bulk went. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, things came pretty easily. You know, equipment is there, but it's kind of sparse. But that's mm-hmm. by design because we're talking about animals. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, adversaries was a lot of fun. I love creating adversaries. And um, one of the interesting development challenges I had to do with this, I, I made a decision. And I, I, I kind of regret it, but I kind of don't. I wanted to keep this very generic. So it, it's a very strong setting, and it's got a lot of very setting-specific mechanics and talents and rules and things like that. Mm. But, you know, if you look at something like Starkana with its 200 pages, right. okay, yep. two-thirds of that, three-quarters, is devoted to world-building. Mm. I didn't do that because I wanted to create something that, with the original theme I had in mind, I was like, it doesn't matter what kind of fantasy setting they're playing. If they're playing Terranoth, this works. If they're playing you know, Forgotten Realms, this works. If they're playing, you know, Dragonlance, this works. Mm. If they're playing Homebrew, the, the, the idea being that it, it's designed to slide into any existing fantasy world. Right. And as a result, it, it, yeah. made, it, it, made, it made it a slightly smaller product. And, but as a result, you know, it, ha- it has a reduced price point as well compared to some other settings. Yeah. So. Good choices there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like that uh, focuses very well on the uh, on the core concept. Um, so, and I appreciate products that uh, stay focused yeah. and uh, know what they're trying to deliver. Yeah. Now, ha- wait. Now, having said that, um, I am planning some enhancements to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> the The first set of adventures I've built out have built out a pretty strong sort of micro world of the city, capital T, capital C. Okay, yeah. which is which is yeah. how familiars think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will be fleshed out in a forthcoming micro supplement. So, nice. well, that seems reasonable. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. One more thing about familiar. Can you maybe give us a glimpse of something really exciting or unique that's going to send us all to the foundry to buy the product if we haven't already? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Uh, so one of the, one of the interesting things, um, that I really put a lot of, it, it was a lot of play. This, this is kind of weird. I did a ton of play testing, a ton. And then I wrote the game master section. Right. Um, because this is such a weird concept that I really wanted to distill from lessons learned, not just from what I learned GMing it, but when I gave it to others to run what they learned GMing it. Mm. A man after my own heart. And, and so you you find some so honestly it, it's just about five pages or so that that is really on the game master section but there's critical stuff in there um, some of the big things are uh, you know almost a full page devoted to to setting buy in and the party dynamic because this is such a ridiculously unusual concept you have to get pr- some pretty staunch buy in from your players at session zero and you have to set those expectations appropriately yeah so there's a lot of discussion around that. Um, talking about how you can craft a meaningful story in this type of setting when you have characters that are animals and they're not the traditional quote unquote heroes, right? Mm. The other thing I absolutely love was that I designed two new mechanical what rule sets, I guess, um, that are unique to this setting. 
um, for GMs to use. The first is a new environmental effect called human designed, mm-hmm. which is, is there to apply to familiars because they're intelligent enough to interact with the world the way a human does, but they don't have thumbs. <laughs> um, so, so how do you represent that, you know, mechanically in the game? Yeah. Um, so, so talking about that as, as really an environmental effect. The other big thing that I, I, I put in was the concept, and I actually have to give uh, Huli and also uh, from the from way back in the day from the Dice Folk podcast, G M Caitlin, mm. also were the two people who really pushed this forward for me to do the the concept of animal instinct. This is another unique new rule set that's unique to this setting. The idea is that the familiars are familiars; they have human intellects, even if they have animal bodies, but they still have animal instincts. Okay. And this is is basically it's it's very similar to the fear rules in a certain way, mm-hmm. but it takes a whole new avenue. It, it allows you to present situations environmentally that they need to make discipline checks or animal instinct checks to overcome. And I was even able to create talents for the players uh, to take that can make those checks easier, where they have to fight their animal instincts to do something animalistic when the situation calls for it. Mm. You know, whether that be I'm playing a dog familiar and some human is walking by with a cart full of smoked meats and (laughs) I've got a very important message I've got to deliver for my master, but oh my gosh, there's smoked meats. Okay. (laughs) Uh, You know, as, as one example, you know, a, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, small animals um, are typically terrified by things like thunderstorms. Okay. Um, So how do you, how do you put that in? Um, so that was a lot of fun. And I've got I've got a nice set of tables that talk about animal instinct guidelines and how hard and how easy these checks would be and when you should use them and when you shouldn't. Mm. Um, you know, with easy being something that's like momentarily distracting or tempting, hard being like a thunderstorm, a truly frightening environment. Daunting has several, you know, four purple has several like, you know, like a, like an active battlefield or, you know, overt violent aggression, like you're being attacked by a predator animal or something. And there's only one thing listed for a five purple animal instinct check, the hardest you can make, the most difficult thing a familiar would ever have to deal with, and that is being scolded or reprimanded by your master. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) So, so there, there's some, there's, there's some fun stuff, but I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot of great stuff in here. Um, The archetypes are great. You can play, uh, you can play a cat, um, a dog, a fox, um, a hare, a rabbit, an owl, a raven, a rat, um, a snake, a spider, um, and or a toad are, are the ones in the core supplement. Yeah, Huli, I still remember your uh, your <laughs> New Yorker rat. <laughs> it was Jersey. It was a Jersey. Jersey that's right. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh dear, I love that character. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It was a lot of fun. So uh, no, it's it's an absolutely amazing setting, Chris. And I'm 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 sort of a little bit sorry we we haven't got to do this uh, with you, you know, since the beginning because I, I think that it, it's it's a setting which is so unique and so fun. Um, I've I've heard of it being played with kids because they can really get into it, and uh, you know that they're not using these monstrous amounts of dice. Um, and yeah, it's just a little bit more fun for them. So, you know, I, I think that it's good. I, I think that we need more of it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. What, one of the best things I've heard so far from some of the play groups who've purchased it, um, uh, one group used it, uh, in the world of Harry Potter. Um, oh. 
where where literally they were all familiars to to you know named characters gallivanting around Hogwarts <laughs> Castle. Oh, that's great! That's cool. That's perfect. <laughs> And then we won't talk about the uh, Watership Down uh, group as well. That uh, They took it to another level again. Uh- yeah, that was hardcore. That was hardcore. <laughs> Oof. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway. All right, Chris. So we've talked about Familiar. And if you haven't got it already, listeners, please go and take a look at it. Um, it's absolutely amazing. You'll have a lot of fun. And as Chris said, that there's, uh, there is more to come. So speaking of which, what is next for you, Chris? Uh, Silhouette Studios, and of course the Foundry. What, what's what's on the horizon? Um, several things. <laughs> uh, in terms of familiar, uh, so okay. Let so in terms of familiar, um, I I actually have almost completed. We're really just down to formatting at this point, which Huli, I know you're going to help me with. Mm. Um, I've got a micro supplement. Um, that's about to come out for familiar. Um, it's going to be pay what you want that offers, tw- uh, all it does is it offers 12 new animal archetypes, mm-hmm. um, including some gems like the scorpion, um, the otter, the raccoon, uh, as well as the pigeon um, and the wormling, <laughs> to name a few. Ooh. Uh, sign me up for the otter. Sign me up for not the scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> Um, additionally, um, I'm in development on, as I said earlier, a micro supplement for the city. Um, it's going to be, uh, really just a flesh out of, of kind of a unique setting environment within familiar. And it's going to be a 99 cent supplement, um, as, as a, as a micro supplement there, um, outside of that, I'm working on a few other interesting things. It's taken a lot longer than we planned, but the, the core rules were finished and we, we play tested last quarter, um, or excuse me, in Q4 of 2019, um, a, a psionics handbook, um, which ironically, someone else beat me to the punch and there's already a psionics book out there right now, mm-hmm. but we'll still add ours to the mix. Um, the other two things I'm working on, um, one is nearing completion, um, and it is my cosmic superhero setting called Aegis. Mm-hmm. The other is something that I am working on with Huli, and if you don't mind me talking about it, Huli. Oh, uh, sure. This is something that Huli and I are doing together, and we are not. We are also going to release this on the Foundry and make this uh, pay what you want, because we feel it's a very important resource that everyone should have. We are working on a skill challenge handbook right now. Oh, interesting. Um, which will not only cover the core rules that I've refined over... God, seven to eight years now of Star Wars and Genesis play, yep. uh, but uh, or seven years now, um, but also have a, pl- a a plethora of ready-made skill challenges for you to throw down on the table of various types. Yeah, going to be very very good. exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. That's awesome. Very good. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the show. Um, that's so weird. Thank you, for, to ha- say thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope to come back soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and thank you sam for coming on uh to uh to give me a hand with this uh i thought it was going to be a bit of a daunting task to be doing it by myself so uh to have you on board was absolutely amazing so thank you very much as well oh my pleasure i was happy to uh provide uh provide uh some skilled assistance to uh make that daunting task a little easier <laughs> love it Love it. Well, Chris, would you like to join me back in your uh, your regular chair as uh, we're going to answer a few questions from our listeners? I think that would be wise. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we'll uh, be asking some questions in Under the Hammer. 
Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play. And we've got some great questions this week with both coming from our Patreon supporters. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to, to digging into these. Of course, if you would like to join and get your questions to the top of the queue, just visit us at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis and become a tier two supporter today. But also, even if you're not a Patreon member, send us your questions. Uh, I know that a lot of people send out questions to the Genesis community group, but please send them to us as well, or at least give us some permission. We'd love to tackle those questions on the show. So, Chris, what's our first question? Well, our first question via Patreon Discord comes from Christo, Mm -hmm. uh, who says the following. Uh, Listening to the latest podcasts, finally, and I have a question about operating. Hmm. It says for large craft, which made perfect sense to me. Then when you mentioned the hacker in Shadow of the Beanstalk had it as a career skill, it made me wonder if that's still applied. You know, a classic hacker skill is operating drones. Um, If operating, then what would you use for that? Piloting? Um, to be honest, uh, being a Shadow of the Beanstalk question, uh, these ones I love, um, it's probably computers, to be honest with you. Um, the uh, That's the one that, that uh, I would recommend. Um, the, you know, operating is talking about your really big vehicles. Um, and uh, look, hackers can obviously get into all sorts of things. They can really get into uh, the, the ship's navigation systems and stuff like that. And so they need to know how these big craft kind of work. They may not necessarily be, you know, sitting in the pilot seat um, or giving orders, but they kind of need to know a little bit about how they operate. Um, So, you know, I I think that it makes total sense having the operating skill. And obviously they're a hacker, so they will have the computer skill. So operating drones is using the computer skill. What's your thoughts, Chris? So let me share with you something I experienced at a convention. Right. This wasn't this wasn't cyberpunk. This was actually steampunk. Right. But it applies, mm-hmm. and it it, it, tr- it can transition seamlessly. <coughs> um, it was an aerial combat scenario between dirigibles. Right. And the BBEG had the equivalent of a capital ship mm-hmm. that was made entirely of dozens of drones operating as a single hive mind entity. Wow. That sounds cool. <laughs> what this guy did and, and the drones had like no, um, like, like they had, they had like only, they only had like a handful of, of, of basically, basically it was a giant minion group. Okay. <laughs> all of the, all each drone, each individual drone's ability was only like one for everything right. and their character, their characteristics. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole trauma was like one or two. That's it. Okay. Right. <laughs> but when they were all acting together as one giant, you know, horde like a swarm, basically. <laughs> right. You you can you can do the math for those skills. You know, you're you're you know when you've got ten drones operating. Yep. 
you still had a a pool of it was like it's what's what four yellows and a green i think yeah yeah um and then as they would get picked off it would get less and less and less and less right that was a really 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 cool encounter with a really cool concept for a threat hmm. and because it was done as a minion group it it also decreased its viability as it went but honestly he used operating for that because it was in essence a giant mass vehicle Mm. Where he literally has to the, the 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 controller had to be keeping track of thirteen things at once, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So I thought that was very intriguing in mm. a setting without computers in it. Yeah. Um. Having said that, I wanted to relate that, but I totally agree with you. Uh, computers would be the skill I would use for drones. <laughs> um, and and if it's an individual drone, I mean, even then, you know, if it's like handled through a VR rig or something, mm. that would be piloting. Well, here's an interesting point. Now that you've said that, I'm a little bit on the other side. Um, <laughs> just to change my mind halfway through. Um, look, obviously, when you're talking about uh, a uh, the operating skill, you're talking about operating a vehicle with lots and lots of crew, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got lots and lots of, of drones that you've created, going by what you're saying... That could be classified as crew. I th- I th- honestly think there's an argument there for using it, operating in that in that sense. It's circumstantial, but the thing yeah. is, you need to have a lot of drones for that to be viable. Yeah, okay? true, absolutely. Um, a lot of them. That's why I say, if it's a single drone, I wouldn't do that. But no. but if you're talking about a swarm, heck yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I had not thought of that. There you go. Well done, Christo. You stumped us all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's great. Um, you know, that that's two ways of looking at it. And I think that it's going to be dependent on how your PC has uh, uh, has decided to use those skills in the first place. Um, you know, because it's – I've said this numerous times that I love creative people. And if you've got your player at the table who is really thinking about their character – and, uh, you know, justifying the expenditure of that, that to me is worthy of letting that one through to the keeper because I think that that is, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, um, yeah, hopefully, Christo, that answers that question. That's, uh, that's really cool. I like it. So for our second question, it comes from Captain Smithy. Smitty, Smithy, um, whatever. It's got no. It's got it's no Smitty. H in it. It's, it's Captain, Captain Smitty. It's Captain Smitty. <laughs> and um, he asks um, also via our Patreon Discord. Uh, he says, "Here's a question that just came up, and it turned my world upside down." Oh, I love these questions. Uh, according to how you GMs have made species on the show, and to my own understanding of the rules, I thought you get a special ability which is the free skill rank and a tier one talent level unique ability for free. However, it was mentioned to me that you only get the special ability, which is the skill rank for free. The core rulebook um, on page 192 uh, says this, uh, and it says uh, in the very last sentence under basic species profile, after listing all of the options, it says your starting experience is set to 100 XP. Finally, your special ability is one rank in one skill. There doesn't seem to be anything in that chapter specifically which says you get a free unique ability as well as a free skill. 
is this a misunderstanding or have I been doing it wrong and giving my species extra abilities that shouldn't have been for free? <laughs> wow, totally, Smitty. Um, <laughs> and thank you for asking. And so to rephrase Smitty's question, mm. you know, when, you're, when you've got that 100 starting XP mm. and you get a free skill rank as a special ability, as the advice we've provided on this podcast, we also say you should have a free unique ability that's worth about 5 XP. You know, a tier one talent yep. in terms of its of its uh, of its its complexity. Mm -hmm. The text is, as you say it, for that section, so it can be a bit confusing. But elsewhere, when you get into the other sections and you start looking at the other areas, they also infer that they have a unique ability. So it, it, it can be a bit confusing, honestly. Rather than going through and trying to finagle the individual words and and that are there in, in a couple of very convoluted pages and many paragraphs within <laughs> the easiest way Smitty to infer how it works is to use the rules they give us to reverse engineer the custom species that are already in the core rule book that obviously used those very rules to create them. Doing so clearly shows that a free unique ability of that again, five XP tier one talent level is a part of the custom species loadout standard. So, for example, we'll take the dwarf species, which is found on page 142 of the core rulebook. 90 starting XP. Now, if we pretend to build out the species ourselves, we start with 100 XP. Now, dwarves have 1-3, 4 twos, and 1-1 one, one in their characteristics. So, that's standard loadout. There's no XP adjustment needed there. Their wound threshold is one higher than normal, but not two higher than normal. So, per the advice there, there's no XP adjustment there either. Mm -hmm. They have a free rank and resilience as their special ability with no XP adjustment. So, at this point, we're still at 100 starting XP. But now notice that dwarves have two unique abilities. Both of them, in my opinion, at the level of a tier 1 5 XP talent. Mm -hmm. um, or, excuse me, 10 XP talent. If they, if they both cost 10 XP each, that would bring the dwarf down to 80 starting XP. But the dwarf has 90 telling us that one of those unique abilities is free. Mm. All right? Mm -hmm. To continue that, the aristocrat, um, page 36, is in the same boat. Uh, uh, a three, four twos, and a one characteristic loadout. Tens and wound and strain threshold. One starting skill of cool. A unique ability of forceful personality and starting XP of 100. Mm. If forceful personality cost anything, the starting XP for the aristocrat would not be 100. But it is. Mm. Even the generic human has a free unique ability um, with ready for anything. That's their unique ability. And that and they retained 110 starting XP. And humans are even called out as a part of the build example on page 192. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, but it, it can get sticky. It's often really hard to reverse engineer. Is is it ability worth 10? Is it worth five? Is it, you know. Um, especially in those cases where you've got weird wound threshold and strain threshold adjustments or unique abilities that are, quite frankly, more or less powerful than, a, than that tier one talent. Yep. The laborer and the intellectual are examples of this, where based on their wound threshold, strain threshold adjustments, they should have plus five more or plus five less XP, if you're going by the advice on page 192. Mm. The point I'm trying to make is it's a bit fluid. And despite how clear or not clear it is, can still be very conflicting. But in our experience, our research, um, our playtesting, 
and our reverse engineering of existing archetypes to understand the rules, it appears, and, and we recommend as a best practice, that you do indeed get one free, unique ability of tier one talent strength. Mm. Having said that, if you find that too powerful in your games, then adjust. Mm. The, the Genesis police are not going to take your dice away. <laughs> I promise. I promise. Very, very true. And the other thing to take into consideration, which kind of sort of defends the, the position in a different way, is that some of the things that we're seeing in print have been playtested. So that means that they could have been initially, as per what they say in the rules, but because of playtesting, some of those abilities have been higher or lower, and so they've adjusted them appropriately to try to create that balance as well. Um, you know, which just reemphasizes yeah. the point that playtesting is so important in these sort of scenarios. That you can come up with a great idea for a an ability for an NPC um, or an ability for a species, and it just goes horribly wrong because you know nothing survives contact with the players. Um, so uh, you know, it's something to consider there as well. But um, but yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything else other than that, Chris, to to that brilliantly. Um, uh, you know, brought forward. I think that that's great. That's uh, that's some great advice. Yeah, well, I mean, and, but I want to stress he's not like he's not wrong. It's like no. it's so confusing, and you can infer it one way and then another way elsewhere in the rules. But when you reverse engineer, typically, but not always, that's where it gets <laughs> even more confusing. It tends to tell us that you get a free, unique ability yeah. of low grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're really looking for uh, something which is, uh, you know, really goes into that a little bit more when it comes to species design, Archetypal Species, uh, which is a pay what you want um, on the Foundry uh, by Christopher Rithenbeck. And it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. It gives some good examples of, of two specific species that one is an archetype and one is a species that um, he's designed for this, uh, for a, by way of example. Um, and, uh, you know, even he says himself that sometimes it can be a little bit airy-fairy because of just the nature of the design of some of these, uh, you know, unique abilities. And you don't want to be sort of like borrowing off this species ability and borrowing off another one. Uh, you want something different and unique for your, your foundry product or for your, your setting at home. So, you know, just, you know, follow the rules yeah. as we've suggested them and then tweak them as they require. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and, and a lot of it's setting dependent too. Like, holy yeah. for my for my my Aegis setting, my cosmic superhero setting, hmm. um, all the all the archetypes that I created were more powerful than standard archetypes. Yeah, yeah. And I did. I mean, mildly. Um, they they have basically an extra one or two abilities um, without a reduction in XP because for the particular setting. I wanted the heroes to have that mild bump in power level. Yeah. So, I mean, that that comes into play too. So, yeah, mm. yeah. Just, you know, it's all general advice. Find what works for you. Yep. Well, Huli. Yep. That was a long show. <laughs> yes, it was. As normal. Uh, this is what happens when I'm let loose on the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I, I do believe it does bring us to the end. Yes, it, it does. Uh, but, yeah, you know, we'll be back with a new episode in short order, which we've been planning for a while, uh, and it's by listener request. We'll be digging into specialization tree creation from the Expanded Players Guide, and we'll be doing it with a very special guest. 
a very familiar special guest. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, our next episode will feature the return of Sam Gregor Stewart, the lead developer on Genesis, uh, to provide his and, and the EPG uh, mm. to provide his own insights into specialization tree creation. And I, for one, cannot wait. Yeah, it's going to be epic. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, having done enough playtesting in my time for FFG, knowing how these work, I, I'm, I'm wanting to, you know, jump into uh, his brain and just see how they're they're planned out from the start, um, and uh, so that you guys can do it at home. So, uh, so yeah, it's going to be epic. And uh, while you wait for that episode, please continue to send us any other questions that you might have about Genesis, being a GM or player, or just anything gaming related uh, ask us we'll um, we will have answers i'm sure we will even if we you know have to take some time to deliberate and whatever else we will find the answers that you need uh and how can they do that chris <laughs> they can email us <laughs> forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it up on one of the many social media platforms including facebook twitter youtube and reddit uh, by searching at Forge Genesis. Um, and as usual, we have some phenomenal conversations on the D20 Radio Discord server. Mm-hmm. And of course, truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own podcast Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. So don't forget that you can also join the ever larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or a follow us as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites or on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and Spotify. And of course, as we said before, visit us on our website, forgegenesis.com. Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for listening through this, again, epically long episode. Hopefully you've had a little bit of fun. I know that we've had uh, fun doing it. Um, and uh, I hope you can join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley, may your tribes be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good game. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Yeah.